Welcome to Equine Assisted World. I'm your host, Rupert Isaacson, New York Times bestselling author of The Horse Boy, founder of New Trails Learning Systems and LongRideHome.com. You can find details of all our programs and shows on RupertIsaacson.com. Here on Equine Assisted World, we look at the cutting edge and the best practices currently being developed and established in the equine assisted field. This can be psychological, this can be neuropsych, this can be physical, this can be all of the conditions that human beings have that these lovely equines, these beautiful horses that we work with, help us with. Thank you for being part of the adventure and we hope you enjoy today's show. And please remember to press subscribe and share. Welcome back to Equine Assisted World, where we talk to people at the cutting edge of this rapidly developing field that we're all involved in and interested in and fascinated by how horses help humans and how humans can help horses back. A very different world now, the equine assisted world to where it was a couple of decades ago. Um, 20 years ago, it was really on the hippie margin still. And a lot of us who were in the field or beginning in the field were having to justify ourselves all the time, basically explain why we didn't suck constantly, which is very annoying and tiring. But nonetheless, understandable when you were dealing with a mental health world that had no understanding about nature or animal-based therapies, let alone movement in the brain, let alone axons and dendrites and BDNF and oxytocin and all these things, which we now know about almost in a mainstream way. But back then, only a few neuroscientists here and there knew about. So um, way back when that was still the case, there was a pioneering group and a pioneering organization and a pioneering modality known to a lot of us as Igala. I'm lucky enough to have the founder of Igala, Lynn Thomas, here with us uh, today. She's awesome. And she's going to talk to us not just about Igala and how that evolved and what were the achievements were there, but also about her two very exciting new ventures in the equine assisted world, Arenas for change and horses for mental health. We're all waiting with bated breath to find out what you're up to, Lynn. So Lynn, um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Rupert. Thanks for having me on. And I love your introduction. I think that was a really great description of what this journey has been like for the work that we all do. Yeah, it's, 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 we've all been through it. Um, and now here we are suddenly a bit surprised, I think, that we're suddenly, you know, insurance companies will now pay for stuff that they laughed at 20 years ago um, and that the neuroscience and medical field has caught up um, and now does recognize very strongly the, the, the work that we do. Largely, I think, because a lot of them ended up having kids personally themselves who ended up in our programs or uh, patients that ended up in our programs. And then they, at a certain point, they couldn't ignore it anymore. Um, but yeah, whatever the evolution, it's been positive. So Lynn, I've talked too much already. Who are you and how did you get into this? Yeah, thanks. And I and just to say too, I do agree. It's really been a grassroots effort um, with all these programs sacrificing and pioneering so much. Uh, but yeah, my my as you mentioned, my name is Lynn Thomas. I'm a mental health professional, licensed clinical social worker. And I like to share that my background is not with horses at all. I grew up in the city. I didn't have exposure to horses. The most I'd ever done was Girl Scout camp, horse camp for one week. 
And that was the extent of my um, exposure to that. So didn't even know that I had an interest in horses. And I had an opportunity. I went to school, went to college, got my degree, my bachelor's degree in psychology and trying to figure out what I was going to do because I had no idea what, what I was going to do with that. And I saw a little classified ad in the college newspaper that said wilderness counselors wanted and a phone number. And I was like, hmm, I don't know what that is. I had never really backpacked. I had never done anything like that. I, the most I'd done was car camping with my family. So I called up and and it turned out to be this like survival kind of program for troubled youth going through the deserts of Utah. By the way, I live in Utah. So um. And I was like, well, this sounds interesting. So I embarked on a new journey in my life that got me into that realm of nature, of experiential learning, of survival skills, and, and the concept of not just talking, but doing, and also challenging ourselves. We can get, you know, I kind of got into this like, well, we don't really grow unless we're challenged. And so that kind of got me on that path and journey. And then I, years, sometime later, uh, I left that wilderness program because you, we'd live out there two weeks at a time, have one week off. You're you're hiking around in survival with troubled teens. And it's it's a high burnout rate. Let me just put it that way. But it was very rewarding and decided I wanted to go back to school and get my master's degree so I could be a therapist. And in the wilderness program, the therapist could come in for one day and hang out and camp out if they wanted or they could go home if they wanted. And I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. So I went back to school to be a therapist. Well, in the meanwhile, I ended up working at a, a, a residential youth program on a ranch setting. And that's what got me introduced to horses. And there I said, wow, the stuff with horses is really powerful because I love what we do with the wilderness. But you really got to be out there for a while. But then in a one hour session with these horses, you see these phenomenal changes happening. And so that's what got me interested in it. That's where I was introduced to Greg Kirsten. And that led on to a path. I went back to school with the intention to go back to the wilderness program, be a therapist there. Well, while, so I did that, went back to the wilderness program. Well, while I was in the wilderness program, they said, hey, we don't want you to stay in this wilderness part. We're starting this ranch program, treatment boarding school in a ranch setting, and we want you to move over there. And I was like, well, I don't, I don't know, but okay. And it was just starting. The person who was running it, it was really rough. There was five kids there. They were kind of running the place. And within a month, I was then asked to become the executive director of that program. And oh, I was told, what's that? How old are you at this point? I was 22. I know I was fresh out of college, out of my master's program. They clearly I was like, a lot of other people they could draw from, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was one of those situations where I was like, what? I And actually, at the time, I think I was, uh, there weren't many women directors of treatment boarding schools, but also I was like 22 years old or 21. I can't really remember now. But, um, and at first I was like, no, no, I don't, I don't want to, this is not what I want to do. And I was married at the time and my husband, you got to do this. This is an amazing opportunity. Okay, fine. Well, I ended up running in that program and, and wanting it to revolve around the horses. It's on a ranch, wanting the horses to be the primary focus. Why? Why with so little horse experience and just one sort of exposure on a ranch with, in a therapeutic setting? 
why were you already at this point convinced um, that you wanted the whole thing to run around the horse? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. It was really that little exposure that I had for the, I think I was at that other program for a year um, or maybe a year and a half, but it it was so powerful that I saw what the horses could do. And this ranch had horses. And so I really felt strongly that I want that to be the main element of everything would revolve and focus around the central. So there's school, there's other recreational programming because these kids live there, right? And there's nature and all that. But I felt so strongly, and that's a good question. I mean, I think I'd just seen the power of it. What had you seen out of interest? Because I mean, people like me, I'm a horse obsessive. I always was. So of course I'm going to revolve my life around horses because I want ponies in my life. You're coming from a different place. So what? So you're obviously observant. What had you observed that was so transformative in that one year that you were on that other ranch that made you so sure that you wanted this new program to revolve entirely around horses, despite not having a horse background yourself? I think one was they're living beings. And so you can go out in the wilderness, you can do ropes courses, which I did a lot of that, and they're not really reacting to you. And so I I saw these horses react or respond to these interactions, relationships with these with these kids and their families when their families would come out. And it was that it was that response that made such an impact. And yeah, then people say, well, why not other animals? Well, the horses respond in a way that seems more authentic. They don't care if you're their friend. <laughs> they don't they've got their own thing going on like dogs or other animals, they tend to, well, maybe not cats, but they tend to um, not have that level of dynamic response that you see horses have. And I saw it through that relationship, through that interaction, um, have such feedback and have such meaning in a safe way, because you can talk to kids or talk to them and say, hey, it would be good if you changed your behaviors this way. But the horses give that nonverbal feedback, like, I don't like what you're doing. And when it comes from an animal like that and not from a human that has biases and agendas and, and there's histories with different humans in their past. Um, but when it comes from a horse, that seemed to impact. That seemed to have meaning. And they wanted to have that relationship. They wanted to make it better. And so I think seeing those kind of scenarios where I saw people change more rapidly in that kind of environment. So that, and that's what motivated another, me. I've just written down these two words, dynamic response, the dynamic response of the horse. That's an intriguing um, way to put it. Can you, can you, can you tell us a bit more what you mean? Let's imagine you were not talking to an audience of people who were already sold on equine assisted stuff. Dynamic response imme is effectively immediate, strong feedback. In what particular way? Because let's say, for example, you worked with goats. I've worked with goats. If a goat doesn't like what you're doing, there's some immediate feedback. They leave. Mm -hmm. um, they leave pretty fast. If they really, really don't like what you're doing, they'll butt you and then leave. Um, so that's dynamic feedback. Um, obviously, a dog might run away, whine, lie on the floor, show its belly or bite you, depending on what sort of dog it was. That's dynamic feedback. Um, so. What is it about the horse's dynamic feedback that sold you? Yeah, I think 
That's a really great question because I've had really powerful experiences too with other animals as well. And I think one, when you were, when you were saying that, I was thinking, well, one, their size, maybe the dyna dynamicness of it is they're bigger and the responses feel bigger. And because they're bigger, there's, they can be more intimidating than can be scary. I mean, they could hurt us in yeah. a, maybe a, a more, a more dynamic way. But then at the same time, there's an element of gentleness. You know, they're yeah, soft. They have these soft eyes, tend, tend to have these soft eyes. And I think maybe because of our evolutionary history with them too, there might be that connection with them. So I think when you ask that, it feels bigger um, in a dynamic way because their responses feel more impactful maybe like i said their size our history with them that fear draw like i'm fe i'm fearful of them but i'm i'm also drawn towards them it was they're a, iconic a, they're beautiful they're yeah attractive. Yeah. yeah and i really do think i mean they're di i mean being a prey animal they really are more aware of their environment i i think maybe than potentially in other animals and so i do feel like they have this kind of way of sensing and responding to people that might end up having more meaning because as a human, I'm also maybe have a traumatic background and I'm also maybe scared of my environment. Mm -hmm. And I also want connection and have a herd like the horses mm -hmm. have. And I think there's a lot of parallels that horses have in their kind of just organic way of being, natural way of being that that I don't think is as clear with other animals. And you know, you've observed all of this in that short year, despite not really having a background with horses. That's in interesting to me because it takes a while, I think, for many people, even when they're learning to ride and they really want to engage with horses, it takes people a long time to learn how to read horses. You must have an unusual series of observation skills. You also must have had good mentors, presumably, on site there um, to help you interpret what you were seeing, no? Or did you come? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely the case. And um, you're right. I mean, I think the way my mind works, <laughs> I'm looking as a therapist, I'm looking for what's going to help our clients in the best way I can find. And I had experienced different things, different environments, and had been working with troubled teens since I was 18, kind of thing, too, and different capacities. And I, I just, I think I just saw the teens respond and the families respond to horses in a way I hadn't seen in other places. So that captured me. And then when I had the opportunity to run this program and kind of turn it into the program, I'm so I had enough experience working with troubled teens that I knew how to create a program to support troubled teens in their growth. And involving the horses, just like, oh, I could see the the power of it. And I wanted to do more. I wanted to offer more of it. And so at that time, like you said, this wasn't, there were other programs out there and it was mostly teaching horsemanship and, and that kind of thing. So I mentioned co-founded Egala with, with Greg Kirsten. So we haven't co-founded Egala yet, but I actually had worked with him at that other program. So I contacted him and invited him to come to where, what I was doing now. He was and a that's what. Presumably. Yeah, and he's a horseman. Yeah. And so that and he had been working working a lot with troubled teens too. And doing kind of more the 
I would say ropes course concept, the experiential learning concept of creating problem solving activities. And through that, you learn things about yourself and you get confidence because you overcome the problems and find solutions. So it was setting up more activities like that. That again, I think was novel at the time, maybe. Um, whereas most was, again, teaching basic horse, not basic, but teaching horsemanship, teaching riding and involving it and doing maybe competitive equestrian experiences. So I ended up, I was in this program, running this program, and then ended up getting pregnant. And it was one of those life scenarios where, okay, what do I do? Do I stay, do I stay working? This, I was working probably 80 hour weeks when you're working residential. And then they had put me over the wilderness program by this time too. So the programs were doing well. And I was like, oh, okay, do I stay? Do I, you know, what do I do? And then I found out, and I was planning on, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep working. I'm going to stay. And then I found out I was having twins. <laughs> and I was like, oh, and I said, okay, that's, I don't think I can do an 80 hour work week and also take care of twins. <laughs> that kind of put me over the edge of, okay, maybe I, I need to leave. Um, and so I did, I decided that I needed to stay home and take care of the twins. And that's where it was because of that, that I'm talking with Greg and we are like, he was like, I'd like to train other people. And like, that's great. And because I'm not doing this 80 hour week, I'm staying at home. I need a hobby on the side. Sure. Let's start doing training other professionals. And like you said, back then that was, I think I'm trying to remember we did our first training in 1997 or 1998. And decided to formally start EGALA, Equine Assisted Growth and Learning Association, as a nonprofit organization to train professionals how to do this. There really wasn't much out there at the time. There was EFMA, which was a subsection of what was back then called NARA, now called PATH. Um, I know Barbara Rector. I mean, there were kind of things kind of happening out there, but it really wasn't a whole lot. So it was kind of starting this new niche that... I said, I really did think it was going to be a small hobby on the side. I didn't expect there to be that much time um, to it. But as you can see, that journey, <laughs> I was pleasantly surprised that actually there's a lot of people interested in incorporating horses for mental health. So within a year, so we formally started EGAL in 1999. Within a year, it grew. And I, once again, was working every time I could, every time the twins were sleeping, I, I was working. I look back now, I was much younger than obviously. So I was like, how on earth did I do that? Uh, but we really started getting the word out there. And, and ultimately, I feel that my lack of background in horses was one of the strengths to that, because Trying to get credibility in the mental health community, especially back then, as you said, we were looked at as very alternative, very out there. Um, and so I felt like I could speak the language to people who knew nothing about horses, who had no interest in horses. And what did they need? And, and being a mental health professional, what did they need to hear to start being open to this kind of concept? So we really focused our marketing and our efforts to kind of get out there in the mental health world. And I feel like that was a great kind of beginning of, of getting that credibility of building that awareness 
and something that's not associated with horses and, and something that looked at us as crazy. So, but if you, now if you were bootstrapping something at age 12 with, um, <laughs> so mum and, and married and so on, um, I presume that you, you, you had to some, some advantages in that you had this ranch at your disposal with the horses at your disposal so that you could use that. Did, were you doing your initial trainings from there? And then you talked about marketing. We all know marketing is very expensive. Um, so how were you able to fund so young and so raw, um, that kind of machine? Because that's, that's not easy. We know, I mean, there's. Lots of people who've been doing things for 20, 30 years who haven't the budget for that or haven't cracked that. What, 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 what was it that made that possible? Well, by this point, I'd left that uh, program I was directing, became a stay-at-home mom. Uh, my husband at the time was starting a new business too as an, a real estate appraiser. And so that we didn't really have money coming in. And it was one of those leaps of faith, you could say. So I think anybody who's an entrepreneur might be able to relate somewhat. So what funded it? My, our credit cards. That's what. Yeah. Fun, and I do not. I'm not promoting that as a good idea. I'm just saying that. Um, yeah, we played that game of every little bit that came in went back into the business, and then yeah, my my personal credit cards. <laughs> got bigger and bigger and bigger the debt on them, but played that game of, okay, I'm paying this credit card with that credit card. Um, and that's literally how it started and why I kind of kept going for a while there till we could start paying those off. I remember finally being able to pay. That was, oh, three years, I think, into it that I was finally able, we were bringing in enough money that I could at least cover that that debt that had it had taken to get it going so i and i will say the other benefit at that time that's when the internet was really kind of starting to gain some traction um, yeah it was still very very slow internet dial up internet <laughs> but it was enough where as a small business entrepreneur you were able to have a way to get the word out there that didn't cost thousands and thousands of dollars and we spent some money putting in some little ads and like horse and rider and um, American Horse, Practical Horseman and some of those kind of magazines that helped us get the word out too. And then that the internet really started playing a role in helping us spread the word. So that was a very fortunate timing and a great gift to right. have that way to that get time, exposure to the world. A wash with five bazillion people all offering their stuff. It was, yeah, it was. Um, yeah, and then presumably then the ranch as well. You were were you able to run the trainings there so that you the costs of those horses and that sort of thing were taken care of by the institution. Presumably, you weren't having to, in addition to getting this new thing up and run, also uh, work out the hay bill. Presumably, or were you? Yeah. So at that time, then Greg and I co-founded that. He had moved up to the area I was in and we literally, he had one horse and a backyard. Okay. That's where we, so we were doing a private practice. I was doing some, again, also that on the side. We're doing some sessions. I worked with youth corrections. Okay, and, so this was no longer at the original. At right. The, and this was no longer at that nice corporate. Was that, that was run by a nice, well-funded corporate <laughs> entity. 
Um, and so we had that going, but we went the route of people hosting the trainings. So as we got a training, people host it. So they provided their facility, they provided their horses. And so, I mean, I think that first year, um, 1999, we did six trainings, which was actually better than I thought. And I kind of thought like, that's all we would be doing in a year was six yeah. trainings in a year. Um, it ultimately grew later in years to like, we were doing like 80 trainings a year. So you can kind of see the growth of what happened and it didn't take that long to get, um, back then, like I said, a few years. And so, yeah, that's how it started. And that's why I tell people you actually, even with a, if you want to get a program started, we started with a one horse in a backyard, not even a proper arena. Yeah. Um, So. It was, and because our our approach wasn't mounted work, it was primarily on the ground and later became all on the ground. We mm-hmm. used to do some mounted back in the beginning days. Uh, one horse would be okay. And we didn't have that many clients either to worry about the horse burning out. So what became yeah. of that horse out of interest? Who was that horse? Did that horse have an interesting personality? Uh, I'm trying to remember if that was jazz. I mean, jazz is the horse that has the most memory for me. I don't, it wasn't jazz though. And now I'm trying to remember what that horse was. Chief. I, anyway, I, anyway, he was a quarter horse and most of the horses that end up getting were quarter horses and yeah, great personalities. Um, yeah, dynamic yeah. feedback is their thing for sure. A very dynamic feedback. And I'll share a story with you. I don't know if now's the right time of one of the more prominent stories that it's not with clients, is with practitioners that kind of really impacted my view about horses. So maybe I don't know when that time will be, but <laughs> all right. You said okay. I said the teaser. All right. Well, we're all teased. Um, okay. <laughs> no, please. Tell it if you if you feel you can. If you feel not, uh, we'll skip. Yeah, no, I. This is kind of one of the things that impacted me and my view of horses. So there's a horse named Jazz. I'm a beautiful gray, um, speckled gray, and yeah, he he was this horse that, like, when kids would walk in and and they would like, I'm tough, I'm cool. He'd put his ears straight back, and chase them right out of the arena really and it's he did, i yeah. mean ultimately he just didn't like any double messages at all if you were not in if you were not congruent with what you felt inside to what that mask was that you had on the outside he just was like i'm gonna kick at you i'm gonna like i mean he he'd do all sorts of dynamic non-verbal reactions to that and you really had to be completely congruent for him to want to interact with you interesting and you didn't select him because of that he just emerged he just no it just emerged as his personality which was really awesome and well one time we were doing a training and we were doing stuff in the round pen and this was with a group of practitioners many who are horse trainers or self-proclaimed horse trainers or whatever but have horse background and horse experience and they were just gonna do back then we were doing some round pen stuff and what we did and um they would go in there with jazz and just, you know, try to do what they do as as experienced horse people and get the horse to move around. And he would just uh, ears back, 
turn his butt, do the little kickups, um, and just chase them out too, which was like amazing. But anyway, there was a, a person there at our training, a mental health professional, and I had known him. He works with troubled youth, really good counselor, very green in the horse world, really doesn't have much horse experience at all. And he went in that round pen and jazz just started going round. And that was one of those moments I was, first of all, in awe of. But second of all, that realization of how much horses can pick up on things. And it's not always our book knowledge. And it's not to minimize the importance of having that knowledge of, of an expertise working with horses. And this course, I guess, was just so sensitive and so... I don't know his personality, but anyway, I was just amazed by what they pick up on. And this was, you know, he picked up on that guy's personality and was, I guess he wasn't a threat. Maybe the way he came in, I don't know, but he's also really good with people. So, okay. So you, you evolve Igala. What if you were, you know, let's say I didn't know anything about equine therapy stuff at all. What did Igala do? What does Igala do? As far as the actual model of Yeah, what does it set out to do? What's what's the purpose and how does it do it? So I think one of the things that we were getting interest from the mental health community and and starting to get more credibility is we set standards. And the standards were not just about how to be with horses. The standards were about for the mental health community. So for instance, we required the team of a mental health professional and an equine specialist, and both had to have certain quali minimum qualifications in their, their areas of scopes of practice. So by requiring that a mental health professional is always there, we were very, very clear that we are doing a mental health service. This is not equine, whatever. We're doing a mental health service and we're involving horses in that. So being very clear about that, we were we at first we did do some mounted stuff I mentioned. Later we became all on the ground and there were a couple of reasons. One was because we saw the value of that connection with the horses while you're on the ground where horses can be maybe more authentically themselves. And not to say again, there are wonderful benefits with riding too. But the other thing was perception. When you would say we're involving horses, the immediate thing was, oh, that's nice. That's recreation. How nice to do that. Right. <laughs> um when we talked about doing stuff on the ground, it kind of helped, I think, that perception of, well, maybe this is a little bit different than recreation. Mm. And so I think that helped as well. And then the other thing that we did was, too, was we were clear we're not teaching horsemanship. Now, again, clients maybe would learn a lot about horses along the way. But I think, again, we were very clear. We're setting up, we're structuring sessions in a way that's deliberate to meet treatment goals. And learning about horses is not our objective. So I think, again, getting that message out there was also very helpful. And, and then we did things with the horses that didn't look like normal horsemanship. And actually, later, we even started, many several years later, we even started encouraging, don't even use horsemanship tools. Don't use halters. Don't use lead ropes. Get all of that out of the space, again, partly for perception that this is different. This is not your typical type of thing that you think of when you think of horses. And so I think that was part of our messaging that was getting maybe some kind of like, oh, maybe this is something a little different and, and really being clear about 
these are professionals. These are mental health professionals. They're doing what they would do in an office, but they're doing it in this different environment that has these additional benefits. So. Okay. So I, I, I begin to understand more now about the Egala model. That's very, it's very astute of you guys to, to address, I think up front that people would regard it as recreation and wouldn't take it seriously unless there was a mental health pro professional involved. Of course, that, I guess, to some degree is a limiting factor too, because unless you can find that mental health professional to work with, you then wouldn't be able to do the program, I presume. Uh, um, what, so what, how did, did you help people or mentor people to say, okay, you're a horse person and you want to do this stuff, but you're going to need to find a mental health professional to work with. Here is the ABC of how you do that or find that, or did people just have to hunt it up themselves and then show up together for a training? How, 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 did, how did it work? Because it's a, it's a relatively tall order, I think, for a lot of us people that don't exist in any kind of mental health professional world to team up with those people, particularly back then. Yeah. In fact, when we first started, I would say, I don't know, just get, but probably at least 90% of our membership were equine professionals. Okay. And 10% were metaphors. So you're absolutely right. It was starting to get that interest. And then the next step was, like you said, it was usually mental health professionals that were also horse professionals that they had experience with horses and background. So then they started, oh, oh, this exists. I can include both my interests into one thing. This is amazing. And so we kind of started, the next step was attracting those mental health professionals and then really, I think it became more that broader awareness, more word of mouth that started to introduce, and we were presenting at, present at mental health conferences and, and as well as other programs would and practitioners. But then it started getting that, peaking that interest of people who don't have horse experience. And we would say straight out on materials, you don't need horse experience. You need to work with an equine specialist that has horse experience. <laughs> But you don't. Now, back then, too, I think there was some criticism about that, like everybody should have that horse knowledge. And I, I agree, you do need to have some. But to get the, the feet in the door, um, so we started then attracting these mental health professionals that had zero, like me, I had no background with horses. I had no interest in it. And I would share that straight out. I don't have a background with horses. I have no experience with that, but here's why I do it. As a mental health professional, I see our clients change in ways that I don't see in the office. And that's very rewarding as a mental health professional to know you're making a difference. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it did take some time, but it, you know, I think within probably four, four years, for sure, we were had probably equal equine specialists and mental health professionals in, in the membership. And then it became even more mental health professionals because we had the mental health professionals that also had equine and then mental health professionals with no equine. And it actually ended up becoming, I would say, the majority of our membership ended up being mental health. So that was that progression of getting that word out there. Now, we all know the dangers involved in working with horses. Um, Jazz obviously showed you some of those. Uh, I presume he never actually did nail anybody. I presume it was mostly mock charges rather than actually putting someone on the ground and kneeling on them or, or that sort of thing. So, uh, and of course that we know that's what horses mostly do, but nonetheless, it's an, it's a dangerous thing. How could you without horse experience discern whether somebody truly had enough horse experience or the right horse experience to be able to do this work professionally and safely? Because 
this is one of the hard things, as, as all the listeners know. In the world of horses, it's such a specific knowledge set. And there are a lot of people, sadly, who claim to have more knowledge than they do. Um, and we all know that it's something that real knowledge with horses, really being able to keep people safe around horses takes decades to, to acquire. So how could you at that early stage, and then how could you help mental health people with no equine background, how could you help them discern who were the right equine professionals to work with? Mm, I, yeah, I mean, that's such a great question. And I think is the ongoing challenge. Um, and, and I think it's still this way, but back then too, especially, yeah, there's no, nothing standardized in the equine industry. Right. And there's no Nothing's one. In the USA, no. Yeah. 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 And there's no one, uh, like said, there's so many different knowledge bases you could have and routes you could go in your horse experience and journey. So we ended up having membership discussions about what could we set as a minimum standard and decided like, well, how do we define a professional? And a professional is someone that has formal training, that has hands-on experience as well. And that follows standards and ethical guidelines and what they do. So we kind of created our own standard back then in a gala that has pretty much stayed the entire time. And that just basically says you have this many hours of, I think. And how does somebody prove that to, to, um, to you? And then they would, they they would send in, yeah. And you can't always prove it because a lot of these things don't have, you don't get certificates necessarily, right? Absolutely. I mean, it was honor policy. Most of it, they would send in, here's what we did to achieve this. No, I mean, you have some organizations like Pat that will like test you. You send in videos maybe and can you do this? And I think, again, you still, it's a, it's a tough one because people who do have a lot of hands-on background and experience may still be not as qualified or one you can trust as maybe someone else, right? So it's, and I, and I will say it's the same in the mental, in the mental health world, there's schooling and testing and licensure registration in different parts of the world. So you have that, but that doesn't make mean that someone's a good mental health professional, yes. but at least there's a minimum standard, right? Mm -hmm. There's at least something, a minimum standard. And I think that was one of our reasons, too, to have a team approach. A team approach gives some checks and balance. Um, we've gone through this a little bit with Horseboy because uh, we went through a, we've gone through a learning curve and we're still on a learning curve with this where, like you, I started in a, a field with one horse and my son, but I did have by then 25 years plus. I just, I grew up with it. You know, it's what I had always made my living partly from it. I was part of that culture from my childhood on. Um, so I had skills to draw on uh, and I could discern whether other people did or not. However, when we first began doing what we did, we took at face value uh, some, some things and ended up realizing that was a mistake. And then also um, realizing that there were such vast amounts of differences in, 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 in what people's experience with horses were what, how could we distill that down to a base minimum? Um, because as you say, just because if, if they were coming from a European country where there are standardized exams that you do with horses and that sort of thing, it's, 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 it's actually more regulated. Um, it didn't necessarily mean that they knew that much. Um, 
And so we realized that the only way we could know was to see them and talk to them. And that's why we ended up creating a, a level one entry course where one could discern um, exactly what somebody's um, experience base was. And if they didn't have enough to really go further, then they couldn't go up the levels until they had, you could say to someone, look, go away for 18 months or go away for two years, do this, do this, do this and do this and come back. And if you do that, you would be ready. But currently now you, we couldn't trust you to keep someone safe on someone else's child safe on a horse like this, da, 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 da. but it took us a while. Um, and, um, I'm always intrigued by how other people do this because it's, 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 it's an art, not a science. It's as you say, um, is it, do you think it was because Greg, who you began this, was he a particularly good horseman? Uh, did you rely to a large degree on his discernment? And presumably his discernment must've been quite sound. Otherwise the whole thing would have died a death, right? That, that he must've also been able to help you put into place a series of ways to discern that could make it function. Um, can you talk to us just a little bit about how that evolved and yeah, I think again, like I came in this with not knowledge of horses. So my fear level was, and I think that's good. I mean, I think in some ways the fact that maybe I was a little more acute to this scares me. And then you're absolutely right. I need to trust my partner and feel reassured. No, this is okay what they're doing. It's okay for them to be putting their ears back in this case. They're not past their threat. The horse is not past their threshold yet. And at any time, if they are starting to get past their threshold, we would teach any gala call the clients in, hey, everybody come back here. And you get them out of that in that space and immediately everything de-escalates, right? So, and then you can talk about it. But so, yeah, absolutely. I think there's a level of you got to have to trust your partner as well as the equine specialist and you can trust the mental health professional on the emotional side of the clients, right? So I, I did feel that trust and that level of discernment, and I learned a lot. I had the opportunity, you know, working with Greg and then working with other equine professionals who were genuinely very comfortable and confident and experienced with horses. And I think working with them where they knew limits to push, that helped me push my limits, mm. where I started to get more comfortable. I mean, I'll share a quick story again about jazz. As another example about learning about horses. Um, so I was out at the farm by this time, moved to a farm and feeding and not, and I had my kids up by this. I had another child, right? By accident. Of course it is. <laughs> twins was not planned. And then I had one that kind of slipped in. So 18 months younger than the twins. So I was raising three children. And um little, my youngest, I think he was probably two or three, anyways. Young, he could walk. He's toddling around. I'm pretty far away and I see him walk right up behind jazz and i see and he goes right behind the legs i'm far enough away there's nothing i can do about it and i remember i had learned by this point too like even if i had yelled like hey all i would do is startle the horse like there's really nothing i can do but watch and jazz cocked his back leg like he's gonna kick and my heart like stopped right and then he put his foot and touched Wyatt just ever so gently and just kind of nudged him and moved him out of the way. And Wyatt went toddling on, walking on his way. 
And I was like, wow, here's this horse that kicks aggressively looking, um, all that. And then that's what he did with this little child. So gentle. It is so interesting how they modify behavior like that. We, I have a similar story, which is that Betsy, who was the horse, uh, who I did everything initially on with my son, um, had a, a foal. And this foal was an absolute witch. One of the only truly vicious by nature animals I've ever come across ever in almost 50 years of, of being a professional. And um, this horse was exceptional. And it turned out that the stallion she'd come from was really known for this. Anyway, um, she kicked everyone and everything and bit everyone and everything. And much later on, even I had to, I ended up inheriting her because nobody wanted her. I had to move her off the farm and move her to someone who was a real professional because we had kids going around. I once found what my, my, um, uh, guy who was running my barn at the time, this is years in, who was a real professional, really qualified dude. I found him unconscious. Um, uh, after having been kicked by her, I was like, okay, we have to get her. And uh, weirdly, she was always very, very submissive under saddle, but on the ground. Anyway, when she was very young, I saw a very similar thing happen where Rowan, my son, somehow got away from me and ran up to Manila. I was like, <laughs> and exactly as you described, you cannot shout. And I saw her raise the leg and he grabbed it. And I saw her look around at him and you could see in her own brain, she said, I don't really understand why I'm not kicking you, but I am putting my leg down now. And I myself am a little bit confused about this and off he went. And this, this interesting dynamic, this, this pure line of communication, I'd seen it before with him, with Betsy. And I'd realized, oh, he has a direct line to the horses that I do not. My ego is firmly in the way because I'm a neurotypical human being. Him being not neurotypical, the, that veil, there was no veil across. I've now seen this so many times and anyone I think who's worked with autism a lot would tell the same stories, but no, it's almost a cult because it seems to defy all the accepted rules. And, uh, I, 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 I agree with you this, this, this thing of how these animals can modify their behavior for better or worse with people is something which I think until the therapeutic riding world or the therapeutic equine world really took off was something that was really sidelined to anecdote among horsemen. And now, of course, we use it as a tool. Um, and you, I suppose one could always say, well, one did use it always as tools with sort of schoolmaster horses and that sort of thing, teaching people to ride. But nonetheless, um, I think the awareness of just how much horses cut us a break, I think, is only beginning to be understood and therefore a window on their intelligence that we haven't had before. Uh, it's evolving out of our work, but I'm, I'm seeing a pattern emerge in your story, which is that you are clearly someone who learns very, very fast based on observation, because you started this story saying you had no wilderness experience at all. You're a city girl. What city was that by the way? Well, it moved around yeah. growing up, but mainly in Houston, okay, uh, Texas. Then I actually lived uh, near London, uh, my last two years of high school. So. In the UK? Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, right. So yeah, in Houston, I, I lived, my ranch was outside Austin. I know what a suburban yeah. behemoth Houston is. Yes. Um, despite the image of Texas as all cattle ranches, Houston is anything but that. Yeah. Okay. So then you, this Houston girl, you're out with teenagers who aren't very good at looking after themselves. You know nothing about the wilderness, really. And in a relatively short period of time, you're trusted to keep these kids alive in an environment that you yourself have not grown up in, that usually takes, again, some decades to get to know in order to keep people safe in. Yet there you are doing it, not yet 20 years old. And then to the point that they want you to run the program. And then you go off and you work on this ranch for a year, admittedly, with a very good, with Greg, a very good mentor. But nonetheless, I mean, mentorship still takes its time. And a year later, there you are able to judge, discern, and apply these things. What, what is it in your family line that has this acuity for observation and implementation of what you observe? Do you think, who do you get it from? <laughs> uh, well, thank you. As you were sharing that, I was like, or people are crazy enough, they're desperate enough. But yeah, you're right. No, I do. Um, I do observe. I do listen. And I do take it all in. And I, and I think I have a way of organizing information that helped create what we did with the gala and helped create the model and helped create how to teach it. I'm always trying to break things down. I mean, my dad definitely comes to mind because my dad is an engineer mechanical engineer and he has that kind of perfectionist problem solving working things out kind of brain so i do i guess probably feel i'm a lot like my dad so that could be and yeah i like to learn i mean i think uh, when you, we would you, get criticized okay. for what we were doing we would get challenged we get oh you're being abusive to horses you're doing you know all these things and I would listen to that because those perspectives are important and those perspectives are meaningful. And then it would help me. It's like, I guess I'm a research gatherer in the sense that I like to gather information and then parse through it and then organize it. So maybe you're a systems thinker and you don't, yeah. and somewhere in that your ego must be very quiet because when you come under attack and in the horse world and the mental health world, super factional world, as we know. People come on, everybody comes under attack. They, you, you can't be in that world, either of those worlds, and not come under attack. It's like academia. You're going to come under attack. That's just it. Yeah, to, to be able to not take it personally and to filter the information and then make it work to make the thing better. That takes a certain lack of ego defensiveness, which is unusual in both the horse world and the mental health world. Why is it that you don't take it personally when people go after you like that? Um, yeah, you were young yeah. back then too. It's I, I, I was young. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there is a level of humility as a characteristic. I was someone that really wasn't trying to have any recognition of who, in fact, what years later that I now starting new things and leaving a gala. Um, yeah, I didn't actually really knew people even knew who I was because it was not something that's important to me. 
But yeah, I mean, I think even when you're asking about finding equine specialists and that standard. So one of our standards too was continuing education. Uh, okay. And continuing education is an important standard to me personally, because one, I think as a professional, that's part of being a professional is you're always learning. You're always trying to improve your craft and challenge yourself in your craft. Yeah. And the other part of it, though, is people who do continuing education usually tend to be more open to learning. And it's, it is like, I think horses pick up on that. Like you said, that ego versus openness to learning something new and openness to being challenged. Like, just because I think this way doesn't mean my way is the only way or the right way. So I, I think there is that, I don't know, that belief system that kind of instilled with me somehow, or maybe personality, but I, I think that's why education, always learning, continued education requirements, even like you're talking about in, in a certification or a training program is important at least to me. And when you, uh, when you talk about continuous education, do you mean that when people went through an Agala certification, if they didn't do a certain amount of continuous ed, they would lose their certification? Or do you mean, or and do you mean that you looked for applicants who were already involved in, who had to go in some way before they even began, that they were people who were seeking education in various ways or did you wait till they got their their certification and then say all right chaps we've certified you but there's some hoops to jump through now let's see if you jump through them so i mean i yeah hoops to jump through that drives me crazy so it is about first of all i'll say both to what you're saying that they come showing a history of getting continuing education you did ask for that you looked for it okay that's interesting yep that they have that. And then the second thing is that they commit to continuing education going forward. And how do you get and them to inc- Including uh-huh. with a gala. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. How, how do you get them to commit? Well, that's why we have with the gala, we had a certification that had a two year limited time limit on it. So you did need to renew and you okay. did need to do continued education. And it did include continued education specific to the model, because if you're saying you're a specialist in this model, then there's continued learning. So while I was doing a gala, I mean, the last training manual that I wrote for the training program, I mean, it was continually evolving, continually changing. It was the ninth edition. And technically, I was making little changes along the way that I didn't just change the edition number. So the ninth edition training manual was a complete rewrite from the eighth edition training manual. So it was kind of like, Every few years, there was this like, okay, we've learned new things. We've learned new ideas. And so, yeah, we would want people who are saying, I did the Gala model to be able to say, and I'm up to date on some of the latest ideas and concepts. And I think for me, one, um, I believe in always learning, right? And I believe in pushing ourselves, like I said. But two, I probably would be bored if we stayed only the same. So I think I like, there's a part of me that likes to try new ideas out and, oh, let's try this and see what happens. And it could be a complete fail. And sometimes I would talk to my colleagues and say, okay, I have this idea. Will you go try this? And then they come back. Well, that worked really well. And I'd be like, really? It did? I'd be shocked and surprised. But that kind of makes it fun for me too, um, to try things out. Okay. So now let's assume... um people are listening to this podcast and they're perhaps driving in their car um maybe they don't even maybe they know the word igala but they don't actually know what igala did or does um what was is the purpose of igala 
what's it trying to, people ask me this about Horseboy, for example, and I, so I learned to ask myself that question is basically what we're after first and foremost with Horseboy is communication. And we use our key for that is oxytocin. And that's generally for us produced by rhythmic rocking of the hips on a horse that's in collection. And if the rider is very small, they're up there with us uh, and are being supported by our bodies. And if they're not, if they're bigger or adult, they are in long reins or we're working the horse in hand, but we're looking for that collected rhythm and we're looking to do it in a, that's for the oxytocin, for communication, calming the nervous system. And we're doing it in a place with no negative sensory triggers. So we're not exacerbating the existing problem of the overactive amygdala being triggered by an oversensitive nervous system. So that means nature as much as possible or bringing the outside inside if we have to be inside. And then there's a human environment as well um, of not being an asshole, basically, so that the, the person doesn't feel under threat um, and you're not activating an already overactive amygdala. Um, and then we, once we begin to get these brain changes through the oxytocin is the first bit, then there's BDNF, which is the protein that's the beginning of uh, neuroplasticity. This happens through the activities that we're doing. Then we feed information in and we basically begin to teach academics, first rule-based games and then academics on or with the horse. And eventually the kid learns to teach us and that's horse boy. So it evolved basically through me doing that with my son and then realizing that this was replicable after I got neuroscientists to explain to me what was going on with this oxytocin and BDNF effect and why the collection that I had just noticed got me a better response, just observed it. Now I knew why it worked. So now I knew we could go on and do it more, but at the bottom line, it's communication, brain change, and then feeding in information so that life skills can be taught because as well as the academics that bring someone to a place where they can begin to swim more effectively in the shark infested waters of neurotypical humanity. So now that's sort of horse boy in a nutshell. What's Igala in a nutshell? Well, and I, chill, but in a nutshell. Well, and I will say just even listening to your description too, and I, I think of horse boy method, um, having that clear identity. I mean, if someone is working with neurotypical, like you said, and your background and your experience is really valuable. So I think first and foremost, all, both EGALA and all these organizations that are training and certifying in different approaches, Besides the learning that you get of tools and an understanding of why it's working like you were just sharing, here's some of the rationale, the theoretical frameworks, the, the knowledge base to understand why what we're doing makes sense to achieve the goals we're trying to achieve. So there's that aspect of learning those tools and that knowledge base and understanding. But then there's the community of... So I think both the Gallon and other organizations, one, it's providing a professional community both to learn from each other, but to support and uplift one another too. Especially like you said, in the earlier years, I would say a, a main objective that we had with the Gala was really getting that credibility and awareness out there to the mental health community. So that's where we were started like, okay, how can we get mental health people to start referring to these programs and like you say, insurance or funding sources to be willing to pay for these services because it does cost more when you're incorporating all that you're incorporating with horses. And, and so how can we get that credibility and 
one, having standards so that, like I shared earlier, those standards help achieve that objective. Having a professional community so we're not alone. I mean, when you go to someone and say, hey, I'm one program out there doing this, that's nice. But when you say, hey, there's 2,000 people, there's 500 programs that are connected with one another uh, that are doing this work, all of a sudden it's like, oh, that piques interest. So I think having a louder voice by having a community is also really valuable. Um, and when you when you went to the mental health gatekeepers and said, we have this way of working, what is it that you're saying you're doing? We are ameliorating mental health challenges. We are ameliorating quality of life. We are teaching life skills. We are uh, uh, healing trauma. Uh, we, we are all of the above. When, when you were sitting in front of you, What's Igala doing specifically for the client? Self-regulation, well, is it? Yeah, and just to share too, I think that's another great point. We were very specific that we're focused on mental health. So a lot of what's out there kind of like, well, I do a little bit of recreational writing for physical therapy benefits, or there's actual physical therapists there, there's occupational therapists, and there's so many different types of services. So I think to having a clear, as I said, having a clear identity. Okay, we're focused on mental health. Now people will know us for mental health. And when you ask specifically about that, what I hear you asking maybe again is maybe explaining to the mental health community when I go to a conference, here's what the horse adds to the process. So we weren't so specific to mental health saying it's only this one area of mental health. We were broad to any psycho, psycho, psychological practice out there kind of thing would fall under that umbrella. So mental health is pretty broad, but it was specific to mental health. So people are working with all sorts of different either disorders or well-being in general. Um, so then I hear you saying, well, what is it that the horse brings? How? Why would I take the extra effort, cost, and logistical struggle <laughs> to, as a mental health professional to then involve a horse in the session? And I guess, is that what you're say, sharing? Is no, like, I mean, you, you know, we would say, well, we can get this oxytocin and this BDNF mm -hmm. um, and this neuroplasticity in a way that we couldn't quite get it if we didn't do it this way. We get more of it if we do it this way than if we don't. And I think, I mean, I think it'd be, uh, I think some of the knowledge has grown because from what I recall back in the, when we first started, the knowledge about the size of the horse, I mean the horse, the size of the, the size of the heart of the horse and that energy field and how that could impact. And definitely there was that, how yeah, the oxytocin and how we can relax and how it calms our nervous system. So there was some of that back then that we could share, but that's really kind of come along the way in a bigger way. And the whole concept of trauma and embodiment and that's really been more recent as well. So that's all stuff we can now add into why horses. Horses help us physically engage with a relationship and we can heal through relationship. There's so much research on that now. We can heal through our bodies. Our bodies have more knowledge than our mental heads have about our past and what we bring into to our lives. And so um, courses can help us do that. So back then when we first started, we focused a lot on experiential and because that was a big thing back then too, the value of experiencing 
the value of doing versus just talking. So we're talking too, but we're also adding the doing and the physicality part. And then the value of getting that feedback uh, from the horse. It's like a bio, back then biofeedback was really big. So bio, it's like a biofeedback machine that's alive though, that gives us authentic relationship focused experience and then how we can feel. And then we would add into the engagement factor. If people are not engaged in treatment, if they don't stick with it, if they don't want to come, then they're not going to get the benefits. So horses have an ability to engage. Makes people want to come back and complete the, yeah. the program. Yeah. Right. They want to come back. They want to see their horse connections, their relationships they're starting to make. They want to learn. So, I, I mean, that's that can't be underestimated, the value of the engagement factor. Absolutely. I, I just wrote down while you were talking the, the, the note that I wrote engagement too. This is under dynamic response, but healing through relationship. Um, so when I say, what is it Igala does? And I, I think then if, let's say I was going out as your rep, um, say, well, gosh, I've got to go give a little talk now on Lynn's thing. Shit. Okay. I'm busily taking notes about what she's saying, but dynamic response, healing through relationship engagement. So, cause healing through relationship can cover so many things, right? That is oxytocin. That is serotonin. That is brain change in neuroplasticity. That is BDNF. That is axons and dendrites. That is all those things. Um, and it's also the nervous system. It's the vagus nerve. It's, so one could break it down into that biological, okay, this is why it works in the sort of Lego pieces. But healing through relationship is, I think, a concept that anybody can get. Because I think given that we are relationship animals ourselves, um, the worst thing one can do to a human is put them in solitary confinement. We know this. Um, that healing through relationship with an animal that doesn't press your mirror neurons, but does give you dynamic feedback. Um, if you and I, you're my therapist, I'm your therapist, we're relating to each other as human beings in a way that could get in the way with a horse. No. And we, we found this obviously with autism that because the horse doesn't have these bazillion facial muscles that are so incredibly confusing to someone who's already having trouble reading human faces anyway. The, the horse presents a simpler, easier to understand thing. This has come out later. Do you think it could be true that um, people who are dealing with compromised mental health, because they're humans, their healing has to come through relationship, but relationship with another human is going to bring all the baggage that it cannot be avoided emotionally. Yet a horse will not. Um, do you think that there's a value in that? Do you think that that is a, a factor of the success? Because this has been successful. Egal is a thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's that was probably one of our biggest points. Not with all the wonderful scientific knowledge of the body and the brain that you were sharing there. But back then, that idea of having a relationship with a being that's non-judgmental, they don't come with our biases. They don't come with the same human agendas. They don't know what your background, whether you're rich or poor, and what your academic experiences and knowledge. So that was definitely a an appealing element because, yeah, that does make a difference to have a relationship with someone that isn't judging you and telling you you're wrong and bad and those kinds of things. 
And you're making me think of uh, probably, I mean, my elevator speech probably changed over there, and especially has changed now. I'm definitely more focused on the relationship component than I used to be um, and benefit of horses and the calming um, factor. In the early days of EGALA, a lot of it was focused, like I said, on doing problem-solving activities. And that idea of as you work through these problems and solve them and find your ways of solving them, not someone else, you discover your own ways. So that that journey of self-discovery, of problem-solving, of building resilience, that kind of concept was some of it. And then the other thing was... And and interesting, I think that's still part of it. I don't think for me that's as big of a part anymore. But the other thing I would say to people, they say, oh, what do you, oh, I involve horses for mental health. Oh, so you're like riding and stuff. No, actually, we don't ride at all. Then that usually, oh, yeah, okay. So you're like petting them and feeding them, taking care of them. Oh, actually, what we're doing is horses as a prey animal are really good at reading their environments and they're very sensitive to what's going on around them. So and they all have different personalities as well. So when you're engaging with horses, they end up responding to you in ways that might feel familiar to other relationships you're having in your life and maybe the struggles you're having with your children or with your coworkers. Or, and I said, and so we're able to deal in a really safe way. Because the horses end up responding in a way that feel kind of similar. So we can then work through those relationship struggles in a really safe way with the horses. And then they go, oh, so they could be like my children. I'm like, yeah, it's really. And they go, wow, that sounds interesting. So that seemed to pique people's interest that maybe the, the parallel to the relationship with the horse might be a parallel to other relationships seem to connect. Right. Allegorical, but, but, but also real. Give me an example of a go-to problem-solving exercise that somebody might use with with your the, with the modalities that you evolve. Right, and just so you know, I'm going to say what I'm doing now is different, Indeed. has evolved. Okay, so I'm going to tell you from the beginning. But I'm going to we're tell still you. we're still back in Igala. We're still in the past, but I yeah. I mean again, and I, I I not that there's not value to all of this, but I think. What the way I've mostly shifted now is more the thought process behind what you're doing. Mm -hmm. But back then, we were teaching specific activities. Here's an activity you can do, and simple as go catch and halter a horse, but they don't know how to use a halter. Um, here's a jump and have this horse go over this jump, how a horse go through this path. And so it was more that there wasn't necessarily a real connection to relationship back then as much as it was here's an activity to try and the horse isn't always going to do what you want to do so you're going to struggle and um and you're going to need you know you can work out you have the opportunity to work out how to achieve this objective with this horse and find your way of doing it did, i presume you did you give them any basic safety tips like don't shove a fork up their ass or something like that. I mean, did, did you, or did people really go in cold? You know, it really would depend on the practitioner. Uh, yeah, I mean, there would be an informed consent and talk about horses uh, to a level extent. But for most of it, it was really being open because wanting to see the real them without too much influence on us. But then we can intervene, okay. right, and say, Hey, you know, let's just kind of check out. If you notice what the horse's response was to what you did there, um, you wouldn't say, for example, uh, uh, get this horse over your this jump 
that represents your relationship with your mother or the jump is your mother or the horse is your mother and the jump is you. You weren't introducing any language like that. You were just simply saying, observe what happens when you try to do this, basically. So yeah, no, we would use metaphorical language like that too. So if, if they're having a struggle with family or work, maybe that jump is that struggle. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so would the jump be the struggle or would, would the horse be the struggle? The horse could be. Yeah. Like I remember, you know, we had with substance abuse issues and she really wanted to get a relationship with this one horse. Um, and there was a horse that kept coming between her and that horse. And yeah, so the horse that she really wanted to get was her sobriety, but there was another horse that kept coming between her and that horse. And so she labeled that horse, um, her friends, her peer pressures that gets her to want to use. And then there was a horse that would come up and just kept bumping behind her, like putting his his nose on her back, nudging her. And she ended up labeling that's her mom that keeps bugging her to make better decisions. (laughs) And then that kind of plays out um that scenario so but she offered those metaphors herself rather than the therapist saying do you think that that horse coming between you and the other horse could be your friends your peers blocking you from sobriety right was that suggested to her or that she came up with that spontaneously yeah well and the facilitators maybe would check in about it but yeah they wouldn't the idea with the model was that we don't put our perceptions and our judgments Mm -hmm. and our interpretations on what's happening that we really want it to be open for the client to put their interpretations okay. on. And did you and ever that, that would probably that's a main premise. Did you find resistant to to that or did you find that actually the horses made you talked about engagement that the horses got brought that out of people in a way that perhaps humans would not. Like I could imagine taking a bunch of humans into a room with say a bunch of cardboard boxes and say, build a house out of these cardboard boxes. And they're doing it because they're there. Why not? But maybe not wanting to come up with those allegories themselves, because at the end of the day, you represent an authority figure that they might want to resist or something like that. Whereas with the horse, I could see that that's taken out of the picture. And that neutralizes those. I mean, why do you think that people would um, come up spontaneously and engage spontaneously with their own challenges in that kind of a frank and open, candid way more easily in that equine environment? I think, I mean, can you can picture yourself sitting in front of a therapist in an office, for instance, and saying, okay, what are the struggles in your life? What's blocking you from your success to sobriety? Like, and it's kind of like, well, I don't know, or I maybe not be thinking of everything. So I think, and it's all in your head too. So I could say the right things. I could believe it in my head even. Right. Doesn't mean our body believes it. And so. And, you manipulate a human therapist too. I guess you can't manipulate a horse, right? Yeah. Right. And so, and you can't, I mean, you're not training these horses to do that. People are like, oh, you, you train the horses? No, no, they're not trained to do this. They're being themselves and they just happen to be playing out whatever that's going to be bringing up for you, right? For them. So I think when the horses start doing things that are a catalyst 
for awareness of things that kind of reside deep inside that we might not even be thinking of. All of a sudden, when this one's bu- bumping up against me, oh, it makes me think of this, and maybe I wasn't consciously thinking of that. Right. And so I think, and then they, then we're not just thinking it, we're feeling it. And we're not just feeling it, we're seeing it outside of ourselves. So it's not just residing in here. I now see it externalized for myself. And now I can do some, I can, you can say, oh, let's work on my feelings inside. That's very abstract. But now my feelings are out here in the, in the body of a horse. I, that horse is struggling. I can go pet the horse. I can move the horse. I can do something with that feeling. And as I'm doing something with that, I'm feeling it deep inside my body too. So I think there's that element of it being, so yes, you can do projection stuff inside your office with the painting or with the sand tray or with play or whatever too, but you don't get, the characters are not responding back. The characters are not making choices outside of your choices, right? That's what the horses can add to the experience that brings up things you may not have been thinking about. Do you think that you talk, you use the word catalytic? Do you think that, that horses make people more, are, are, are catalyzers for human curiosity? Do you think they make people more curious about themselves and what's going on with themselves because they're intrinsically curious about what the horse is thinking and doing? Because the horse is such a compelling and iconic creature. Do you think, why do you think? Why do you think a horse is catalytic to making somebody more curious and inquiring, inquiring maybe is perhaps a better word about their condition than they would be if there was no horse? Yeah, I think curiosity is a big thing. And actually with what I'm doing now, that's actually a really big focus too. what we have about how they do. They are a catalyst for our curiosity, our natural innate curiosity, like that's why we watch TV show, movies and books, like what's going to happen next? Yeah. It's that desire to kind of understand what the future may be too. So I think horses absolutely spark our natural curiosity because they do, like I said, they do things that we're not necessarily asking them to do. They do the opposite maybe of what we think we're asking them to do. And that is surprising. That's novel. That sparks those feelings inside of us that make us more open to learning as well as you mentioned all the natural calming effects that they have they also spark that curiosity and sense of surprise and novelty that like oh i didn't expect that oh i didn't know they would do that okay you, you think this it's is taking my my it, my perspective in a whole new direction right exactly do, because i'm i'm just thinking about say dogs for example um dogs are quite close to us in terms of personality and intellect, they're, they're social predators who strategize. Their eyes are in front. They they have social structures that are quite similar to ours, army structures that are quite similar to ours, uh, hunting behaviors that are quite similar to ours. Um, there's even a theory that we learned to become hunters when we came down from the trees by watching and emulating hyenas, interestingly enough. There's, there's, there's a whole branch of paleontology around that. And that, that one can see a little bit because when somebody has a dog, you don't really need a background in dogs to be able to train a dog to basic functionality, uh, intuitively because the dog kind of wants to do it. The dog is mirroring you to a large degree, but horses don't, of course. And the word that came up for me is enigmatic. 
Do you think that one of the reasons why they spark our curiosity so much is because they are enigmas, because they don't respond like we respond. They don't respond, but sometimes they do a bit. But on the whole, they are so their own thing that they rather like an enigma in one's life that one can't understand one's addiction, one's dysfunctions, one's impulses that seem to come from, almost from outside, or even if they seem to come from inside, why can't we control them? Blah, blah, blah. That's an enigma in and of itself, right? Horses are enigmatic. They don't, we can't read necessarily their facial emotion. Like you can read a dog's facial emotions immediately without needing to, to be trained in dogs, but horses, you actually need some training to be able to read a horse. You know. What I'm fishing for here is, do you think that one of the reasons why they spark an unusual amount, or they catalyze an, an unusual amount of curiosity in a human inquiring after their mental health is because of this enigmatic quality that they are enigmas to us? Yeah, I love that thought. And I absolutely think that's true. So uh, when we talk about our, the, some of the new adventures I'm doing with Arenas for Change, we are actually broadening to not just horses. And uh, we just did our first scene through dogs, focusing on dogs, incorporating dogs and in, in mental health, well-being, coaching, um, those kind of education. So, and it was really interesting to me, like, for instance, just something, one, dogs are more familiar. You see a lot more dogs around in cities too. Like, I think there's a lot, because of that level of familiarity versus horses, for most people, there's that much less familiarity. So that novelty and that somewhat intimidate, you know, that's a little bit more scary to go into an environment that you don't know or understand. But that's, of course, one, like you said, one of the values of life. Technically, we think we're in control of our lives and we think we're predicting everything next. But so often life is entering into the unknown. Mm -hmm. And I think entering into that experience with horses for a lot of people, one is the unknown. And the other thing I else with dogs, besides the familiarity, is a lot of the time they're short, they're small. You're sitting on the ground, you're bending over, you're not moving as much. Whereas horses, your your whole body changes. That's true. Right? You're up, you're moving, you're walking. There's a lot more space that horses need. So therefore, you're moving in a lot more space. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think just that change in dynamic makes a difference in how our bodies move, how our bodies react and respond. And then, yeah, because horses are the unknown, the unfamiliar, and then they aren't maybe quite as readily desirous to please us <laughs> as like the dogs. Um, yeah, I do absolutely think they, they respond in ways, even for experienced horse professionals, right? Like they don't always respond in the ways we think they're going to respond. Oh, no. <laughs> and that's why they always say you have to be so present. You have to really build on the moment. You really have to be listening to the horse because they're not going to react in ways as predictably yeah. as, for instance, dogs might, might do. So one, they one, do require us and they could hurt us more. I mean, dogs can bite us, but they're a lot bigger. So we have to be a little bit more. I think it, we don't have to, but I think it encourages us to be a little bit more present, a little bit more on our guard, perhaps. But it teaches us more to be more present and listen than I think some other animals would because of that. I agree. I agree. Um, the 
one, one of the things we began to understand with neuroscience and what we do with Horseboy was that this, this uh, protein in the brain, BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, one of five neurotrophins, but most are just creating more cells in the nervous system. This one is specific to brain cells. We do it when we move and problem solve at the same time. And um, one of the things we realized we'd stumbled into through work with horses was that because, as you say, you have to do all this novel movement with your body, you have to do more movement because you've got to walk more, you've got to run more, you've got to, and when you're on them, you've got to balance and you've got to, that there's a problem to be solved at every turn that people's intellects come alive around horses, perhaps because of, among other things, the fact that they have to move and problem solve so much. And then this creates neuroplasticity, positive neuroplasticity. Um, but I love, and so I suppose the idea of dealing with an enigma, a moving enigma that gives you feedback that you can't quite understand is automatically, um, going to give you this brain derived neurotrophic factor, right? It's going to give you this brain effect because your brain's just going to have to be on firing, firing, firing. And also with that little bit of cortisol, that little bit of stress hormone going, I also need to stay alive in this situation. There's no direct threat yet, but I know it could go into that. There's always the latent potential that it could go into that. So therefore I'm, I'm, I'm paying particular attention. I'm on high alert. One last question before, because I want to now move on a little bit to where you're, what you're doing now. Did you ever encounter with the Igala work, people becoming frustrated with the, the very fact that horses are enigmatic and lashing out at becoming violent with, or venting their frustration on the horses? Yes. Yeah. Um, I think for the most part as facilitators with, with clients, you can kind of see that threshold both with the horses and with the clients. And that's where, again, you kind of say, Hey, let's come in. Let's. And that again, brings down that, that thing, but that, I mean, that's part of how horses bring out our authentic selves too. If, if that, I mean, we actually had a member, we would do staff trainings. We would do staff hiring with the horses. And I remember this one staff got frustrated with the horse and hit it, slapped it. It didn't really hurt the horse, right? Horses can take a lot. But it was like, if that's what you do when you're frustrated, these kids are going to frustrate you. I guarantee it. Um, this probably is not, this is not the right fit. Of, of an environment for, for you at this stage in your life where you're at. So uh, yeah, I mean, it definitely horses, horses are authentic and I think they can push us and bring out some of our authentic sides that maybe sides that we don't even want to look at. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where it's important to have facilitators that do have that training. Like, okay, it, what's important is how we respond to that, what we do with that. Um, mm. And yes, we're always keeping in mind the welfare of the horse. Our, are the horses getting too much? Maybe this horse is sick of this person too. Um, and how we can create that space where the horses can have choice and take care of their needs. How, how are typically horses in a Nigala program being kept? Like for that reason, if they need to be particularly authentic, do you then require that they live in herds so that they, rather than boxes, for example, so that they are more authentic or that they live outside rather than inside? But of course, that's not always possible. Say, for example, if you have an urban program. So how do you, how do you A, ensure the authenticity 
of the horse's personality to be as naturalistic as possible? And then how do you also look after the welfare of the horse in terms of the intensity, emotional intensity of what's going on? Do they cycle in and out of the program? Do they do a certain number of sessions and then take a break? Like what, what, what thought processes are behind that? So how we address that, because like you said, there's so many different perspectives and environments and, and to not be too prescriptive, mm-hmm. but one we'd say, okay, there's ethical codes and welfare codes out there. There's the American Horse Council's welfare code. There's the, I know in Europe, they have their, the codes out there. So one, people would sign that they're one, aware of these codes and two, follow these codes and that that's part of their mindfulness about the environment. I mean, two, we're training that how you keep your horses gives a message to how you're going to take care of your clients and what kind of safe, is this a safe environment? So that consciousness about that. So that's part of the training and it's part of the commitment and the actual role of the equine specialist that they're committed to as an equine specialist. But again, like I said, it's never, I mean, people have different opinions. That's what I've learned in the horse world. <laughs> I go here and this is like abusive and over here, they, they don't think that's abusive. Like it's, yeah. it's that thing. So we kind of try to honor the diversity that's out there on one country, how they keep horses may be just absolutely appalling to someone else in another country even. So I think having those, I, I think those welfare codes, codes that have come out have been really well written and it's kind of more like here's considerations. And so, no, I mean, we encourage that horses are as natural and authentically themselves, which by the way, when we first started Gala was cutting edge. like. The idea of horses being able to be themselves was like, what? That's, yeah. you know, because they need to be trained and they need to be, horses have to act this certain way. And, and so the idea of just natural horses, letting horses be themselves and how to create that environment is just, for me, a lot of great discussion, consideration. How can we keep doing that? So I think it's something that's a prominent, what we did in a gala was a prominent consideration that we actually taught. We want horses to be authentically themselves, but how can they be healthy authentically themselves? I mean, I went to a barn. We went to do a training one time and the horses were so, they're competitive horses. I won't say because I don't want to diss on anybody, but they're competitive horses and they were so like the idea of being free in a space with other horses was not possible. Yeah because they were never allowed to do that. And that doesn't fit for us. And in fact, the, the facilitator owner said, well, we can drug them to be <laughs> able to be doing this. And I was like, okay, if, if a horse has to be drugged to be able to be free and naturally itself with other herd members, then this is not, this horse can't do this work. Yeah, the and horse, that, the that, horse that, is now put that right directly <laughs> in the manual. You know, I was like, okay, I never encountered that before. That was extreme, but I was right. like, okay. Yeah, but these things inform one. Do 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 now, or did it evolve to a point where the gala, where people had to prove that they were keeping their horses in a certain way for you to certify them? Or like, did they have to show video or anything like that of their horse keeping environments or submit, I don't know, their training programs or their, their, their horse welfare and care program or that sort of thing, or 
was it to some degree left on trust, but you recommended those guidelines and, and taught those guidelines? So we decided, yeah, to not go that route because of the logistics of that mm-hmm. at, at, at larger scale, especially, and the cost of that. Um, so we went the route of people signing a commitment mm-hmm. and and then having a system in place, so we had ethics process committee, where people could make complaints. Okay. If there was, if they did encounter something they disagreed or felt was unsafe and didn't consider the welfare of the horse. So we had a system in place to actually address those. And usually it would involve like if if one like that came in, it would involve maybe asking that a veterinarian goes out and does a check and there's okay. a letter from the veterinarian. And so we did that's how we decided to handle it back with the gala. Right. No, that makes sense. So but if, if there was a, a complaint then you could do follow up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um we talked a lot about Igala. Um, clearly, you're somebody who, where not only a good systems thinker, but when you come up with a good system, you then create other good systems. I know a few people like you. Um, it's a great quality. And so you haven't rested on your laurels with Igala, which you could have done. Uh, it's a very, very successful model. It's helped thousands, hundreds of thousands, probably, of people around the world. Um, you are now doing these two interesting new things, arenas for change and horses for mental health. Um, I want you to tell us about them and what they do, but first, um, what prompted you to change gears like this? Yeah, I mean, you know, I had the opportunity and this amazing journey starting EGALA back in 1999 and then evolving through that, with that, evolving the model, and up until the end of 2020. And it was kind of one of those things of unanticipated life events, and at the same time, things going where they need to go. Um, We talked earlier, I think you mentioned about the systems focus, and I have a systems mindset, maybe, but I think that kind of explains a lot, too, of as one evolves and maybe that the organization and what involves and what's a fit anymore. And, um, and I did have some new interests, new ideas along with just kind of things weren't connecting anymore. So, and of course, Egal is a nonprofit and there's a board and, and they have the authority of things. And so it was kind of one of those scenarios of, well, is this a fit anymore? Ultimately, at the end of 2020, Myself and a wonderful team of people did leave Egala and decide to start on these new projects that that you're mentioning. And that was really exciting for me because I had some interests and some passions that weren't quite a fit anymore in the system that was Egala. And again, a wonderful system and and a place for that. And we it's been 21 years, so it's time to maybe do something new and start on some new projects. So that's where it went. And it was first, the first project was Horses for Mental Health that I think I'll go ahead and mention if you think. Or... Yeah, please do. I'm, I'm... <laughs> but wait. Because that was one of the big passions that I was having is I was really, I mean, we talked about really trying to get the mental health community and the public start to have more awareness and understanding of this type of work and that there's credibility to this type of work. And I think we've come a long ways since the 1990s when it really started more in a more formal way but we have a long ways to go. And there was a 
vision that I was having along with my co-founder, Jackie Bomber of Horses for Mental Health, to really start a public awareness campaign in a way that would take things to another level. I mean, ultimately, there's a lot of people out there who still don't know that horses programs involving mental health services and corporate harnesses even exist. They don't know anything about horses as well. So we thought, what can we do to get the word out in a bigger way? So we started Horses for Mental Health as a nonprofit organization to amplify awareness of the work that we do and to also support all the many grassroots programs out there providing these services because it's a big sacrifice to do these programs. There's a lot of expense. Running a horse farm, as you were just, you know, I know you came in from the snow and, and things like that. So we have been swimming in pools today. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot to it. And I think anything we can do as a sector to support one another, uplift one another, and help these programs um, who are pioneering the way to, to bring in more funding. So, so we started Horses for Mental Health with that first, that, that vision. And with the plan, the way of going about doing that, is to do a national and hopefully eventually global awareness and fundraising campaign as a collaborative effort through all the leading organizations, other uh, businesses, membership organizations, us all collaborating together, and then along with the programs all together, because when we're working together, our voice is louder mm -hmm. and we get more credibility and we get more recognition. And so... We started doing this awareness campaign called the Seen Through Horses campaign. Tell us about that. So the Seen Through Horses campaign is what we call a peer-to-peer -peer awareness and fundraising campaign. And what that means is I, I explain it a couple of ways. One, for people who have been on Facebook, and which may be most of, most of the people, but have been on Facebook and they see people with, oh, for my birthday, I want to raise money for this cause I believe in. Right. Well, when they do that, not only are they raising money for the cause they believe in, they're bringing awareness to all their friends and their network. Hey, there's this cause that exists and I believe in it. Right. And all of a sudden their friends are like, what? oh, there's a cause that I may not have known about. And so that's what we're trying to do is create this kind of peer-to-peer -peer network campaign. So um, it's sometimes a little hard to explain, but ultimately what we're doing is we're collaborating with the leading different organizations in the sector so that they can reach out to their network of programs. So like with your organization, Rupert, with uh, Path International or the Herd Institute, Natural Livemanship and Polyvalent Equine Institute and, um, of course, Arenas for Change and other organizations, American Horse Council, Horse Humans Research Foundation. And I know that will keep growing each year, but when we're all working together, first of all, and say, hey, let's do something that's going to amplify awareness, then we can go to sponsors and we can go to supporters or influencers and celebrities and say, hey, while maybe we just have a network of 2,000 or 5,000 people, okay, that's nice. They're not going to really pay much attention. But now when we're working together, oh, now we suddenly have a network of 300,000. Okay, now let's involve the grassroots programs too. Okay, now we have a network of 500,000 and, and a reach. Next, the businesses and the sponsors pay a little more attention now and say, okay, yeah, we want to get on board with this. We'll support this. Mm -hmm. And so what we're doing with Forces for Mental Health is doing all that legwork, creating the infrastructure to put on an awareness and fundraising campaign, 
And what that means is we are creating a fundraising platform or providing a fundraising platform for nonprofit and other organizations who provide services to be able to utilize. We're providing and creating videos of stories of transformation because stories are so powerful. We're creating quality, professionally made videos that programs can share. We create a whole calendar of here's what you can post on your social media. And we're bringing in media attention. We're bringing in celebrities, influencers, and we're doing this all together during the month of May. We, we decided to go with May, which is Mental Health Awareness Month. Okay. Uh, we, we did our first one in October of 2022 for one week, and it went much better than expected, but we also realized one week was not enough time to really mobilize everyone, get all this information. We had all these videos to share, and it was just like a frenzy. So we decided to make it a full month. May was chosen, um, and we did our second one in 2023. And in that process, the nonprofit organizations are raising money for themselves. They're creating teams of people. Hey, we have a fundraising team, ambassadors that are going out and saying, hey, I believe in this cause, this particular program. They involve horses for mental health and well-being. Um, please support them by donating money to them. And then that's spreading awareness at the same time. And so they're raising money. It's getting more awareness. The celebrities and influencers that we got on board are also posting on their social media to their one million followers or hundreds of thousands of followers. Hey, everybody that you may have never even heard of this before, but I believe in the power of horses, that horses can impact people's lives. And there are programs out there who provide these services. And it's something you might want to check into and support. So our reach is getting a lot broader, a lot more quickly. And by working together, we're all stronger. Let me ask you a couple of questions on this, because um, it, I hope that listeners' ears are pricking up on this one. So let me just translate what you just heard a little bit, my listeners. If you are running an equine-assisted program somewhere, which you may well be, um, and you are on the hunt for cash, which you will be, um, basically what Lynn is saying is that here's a fundraising program for you and an awareness-raising thing raising program for you and also um a celebrity involvement um uh, program for you without you having to do much more than do what you do and be who you are she's creating a wonderful platform this isn't this is incredible um this is this is something i absolutely groundbreaking so now i've got a couple of practical questions Okay, so I'm driving my car. I'm going, oh my gosh, I've got this equine-assisted program over here in this place that I live. And um, how do I, as a small, um, struggling uh, equine-assisted program, uh, get in contact with Horses for Mental Health and get myself up on this scene through horses thing? Because when you talk about going through the larger organizations, and even if it's a smaller organization like mine, like Waterboy Foundation or whatever, um, obviously we have a set, each one has a certain number of programs under their aegis, under their umbrella. But we all know that there's a lot of programs out there struggling by themselves. And we also know that the, the um, larger organizations can be very political and uh, often factional uh, one to the other, unfortunately, but it's human nature. And scarcity mentality can very quickly kick in and then people start trying to block each other from it because they, they think, oh, it's, you know, 
there's just a, a, a certain pot of money out there. If they get it, then I won't get it. We know that that's erroneous, right? But we know, unfortunately, that that has led to a certain toxicity within our own world of the equinocist world. What I love about what you're doing is you're going over that and saying, no, 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 chaps, we've got to stand together. So, but if someone is not necessarily affiliated with a big organization, um, even if they are, but they want to act independently or reach out themselves to forces for mental health, how do they do that? Yeah. Um, and I love what you're sharing there because I think with this kind of infrastructure like this, we're creating a platform for collaboration and that, yeah, getting over that mindset of scarcity into a rising tide lifts all boats. Um, when we work together, we're all stronger and we're all more successful. So people can con uh, go to our website, horsesformentalhealth.org. You can get information there or our social media. Sign up for our email list so that you're staying updated on what we're doing. Because like I said, we just started in 2021. And I'll, I'll be I I actually was, because this has been a vision for the last, I don't know, five or something years. And it just has been block after block and hasn't been happening. And we started Horses for Mental Health as the structure for it to happen in. And then all of a sudden things started happening that I I was, it was like it was meant to be kind of thing. We got a wonderful sponsor, Zoetis, which is an animal pharmaceutical company. And they have been so supportive in this. We've partnered with Equine Network, which is an equine media company, and they do events as well and have a lot of publications. And between those relationships gave us the resources and to be able to move forward with this project. And we're always trying, we're, we're coming up with new ideas. It's going to grow each year. Um, so get on our mailing list. That's step one. Go to horsesformentalhealth.org, get on our mailing list, keep up with our emails and, and our announcements. We are gearing up for our 2024 campaign, which will be in May, for uh, applications to be a charity partner, which is one of the grassroots, one of your programs. Maybe you want to get involved formally as a charity partner, which means you're going to set up a team and you're going to be part of the fundraising efforts. The fundraising goes to your program that you do. Um, but we provide all the resources and we provide training for you. The applications are happening right now until January 22nd is the deadline. Hey. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't know when this is coming out, but, but just keep on our mailing no, we'll, list. We will put this out as quickly as we can. Then we're, we are now in December. What is it? December 6th that we're having this conversation. And you're saying January, the what is the deadline? 22nd. I think hey. January 22nd. We've got about six weeks from this conversation. Yeah. Deadline. Now, I'm going to preface this as saying that right now for the charity partners, we are U.S. focused. And um, for this year, again, we're going to be U.S. So if you're a U.S. based program. Now, the reason is just because of our resources and being able to support the programs so that you are as successful as possible in the campaign. However, it is our vision. And I'm hoping in 2025 that we will expand it to include several different, you know, the globe. We want to right. include the globe and be able to have the resources to support each of the programs in, in the campaign journey. So. Well, maybe that's a conversation that you and I can have then because obviously with Horseboy, we, we work in quite a few countries and, um, there's different needs and different setups in each place. It varies quite a lot, how things present on which I find fascinating. 
But I would imagine that the corporate structures and in terms of looking for sponsors, the celebrities, we could widen our net considerably um, if we were to look in different nationalities for that as well, um, particularly Germany. Yeah, I know that that would be very um, amenable, but also Ireland is extremely cutting edge when it comes to uh, institutional support of equine programs, unusually so. I, I, I've been rather amazed in, in the work there. Um, also the UK, also the Netherlands, Scandinavia, etc. So maybe we should have that conversation. But okay, listeners, if you are a US-based equine organization, get onto this Horses for Mental Health website and start looking because this could really help you. Also, my, what I would also say is do not panic and, if you, and try desperately to get in by next May. If you realize that it's going to take a little more time, let it take a little more time. I presume you'll be doing one in 2025 as well then. Is that correct? Yeah. Our goal is that this is an annual event and um, the experience with other sectors who've done these types of things. So other nonprofit sectors, nothing like this has actually been done in the equine industry that we're aware right. of. Yeah. So this has been kind of cutting edge and to get some of the companies and everybody on board to understand what we're trying to do in the vision. So that's why it's been so great that Zoetis and Equine Network jumped on board really quickly for a brand new, and we were a brand new organization too. So that was exciting and it will grow each year. And I think the main thing is, even if you're not a formal charity partner, being part of that aspect of it, the vision of this is to amplify awareness. And we can all do that. If we're all sharing on our social media, we're creating these wonderful videos. And if you find a video that you see that is, touches you and represents your program well and the kind of work that you do, please share it, put it on your website, share it on social media. And when we're especially doing it all together, it impacts the algorithms and I, that's all language I don't really know, but I have this amazing team who has background and experience doing these kinds of large sector-wide campaigns and they are absolutely amazing. So please share it, get involved in spreading the word because it, again, it lifts all of our programs when we do that. I think what we should do, Lynn, if it's all right with you then, is every year when you begin the Horses for Mental Health sort of call for submissions, um, I think we should do this podcast. I think we should repeat this because each year there'll be new people coming in and this is a call to arms, which I think can't just happen once. Um, I think we need to get as much media behind it as we can. You talked about celebrities. Um, what celebrity involvement have you managed to get so far? Yeah, we've, uh, for especially being so new, we've gotten some wonderful celebrities and influence involved. Um, probably the more well-known, maybe Randy Travis, okay. the country singer, Tanya Tucker, country singer. Um, we have some other actors, Riley Smith, Bourne Floyd, Bourne, oh, sorry, Bork Floyd, Sophie Grace, and um, then we have other singers. We have a you know, Emmy award-winning fashion designer, um, songwriter, people like that that have been really, really supportive along the way. So we also, I mean, it's funny, I was on a podcast um, where they asked me, who would I want to go meet at dinner, go to dinner with? And I do not know why this came out of my mouth because like, okay, I could have said like Mother Teresa or the Pope or something. No, I said, uh, Kevin Costner. I said, Kevin Costner. I don't know. It's like, oh, I'm a big fan. Yellowstone. I'm a fan of Yellowstone. Wouldn't it be so cool if we could get the cast of Yellowstone on board with 
because they've really Absolutely. opened up that Western genre and the horses again out there yeah. in the world in a big way. I agree. I agree. And well, sure enough, we happened to get Forey J. Smith on board. He is one of the cast members of Yellowstone. And that was in our this year's 2023 campaign. And I was like, so excited. And we're excited because then, of course, that that connects us to um, to other cast members and and, of course, the director and producer. So very excited about the possibilities there. But we know it'll keep growing because word spreads and then we get credibility that this is a legit and a successful campaign. Um, and again, what's been neat and what my team has shared with me, too, with compared to other campaigns, what they've experienced is. One, the collaborative energy in our sector has been amazing. One of the biggest challenges of putting on these campaigns is exactly what you said. One, the competitive nature and the scarcity mindset and people not wanting to collaborate. And we haven't experienced that with our programs and with our organizations out there. There has been an embrace of this campaign, which has been so fun and so exciting and, and gratifying that people hold those values. And then the second thing is with the celebrities influencers is how excited and passionate they have been to get on board. Again, a lot of times their experience in other campaigns have been you really have to it's really not easy to get to get them on board uh, and these kind of campaigns and to then to actually post and be active in it. Mm-hmm. And we've experienced the opposite. It's they they are passionate about horses and they are passionate about mental health. And that has really gotten people on board and they have posted and they have shared videos. And it has been absolutely a, a phenomenal experience. So we know that it's just going to keep growing each year. Mm-hmm. Um, so the bottom line is, is someone could be driving in their car right now who's running a program, right? And could basically have you or Horses for Mental Health, you be Horses for Mental Health, effectively fundraise for them and awareness raise for them and alongside with them, everybody else in our, I hate to call it industry, but let's say in our field. Um, I don't think I've heard of anybody doing anything like this outside of private philanthropy, where perhaps someone really hears about a particular program and says, okay, I'm going to get behind this, but somebody who's struggling could contact horses for mental health create a video, submit it, and have you stand a chance of having you guys help them take their cause to the wider audience? Is, is, is that right? Yeah, and, and I appreciate that you can clarify because we're not doing for, we're doing it with. Right. And I think that's really important because I think sometimes we're like, oh, we're going to just come be a charity partner and we'll just do nothing and somehow money's just going to miraculously come to us. No, this is about all of us putting in the effort. We're just creating an education. We're providing the, creating the platform. We're creating the infrastructure. So I, I'm glad you, you clarified that part of it because it's not just we're directing money. It's like by doing it together, by you posting, you, you take the effort to schedule some posts or share with your friends or put in an email, hey, if this work is powerful, then that that's meaningful. But it does take time, right? right? It does take effort. So um, the neat thing is, like I said, yeah, you can go to our website. I should have mentioned too, you can go to our stories page and we have our celebrities and influencers on there along with their stories that, of why horses yeah. are so meaningful for them and their and mental health. 
And we also have videos on there. And to, to do all that, to create that kind of infrastructure, pretty much most of all of our individual programs would not have the resources to do that. Right. There's just, I mean, the amount of money that it takes to do what we're doing to create this campaign, yeah. there's no way. But by doing it together and by getting the bigger sponsors that we've been able to get because we're doing it together, then we can have the money, have that money to put all this stuff together to support all of, all of the programs. So, but yeah, it's, it's a joint effort. You know? So if somebody it, wants to participate in this with their program, let's say they go and they create a video. Oh, there's some parameters and then they, they set, they get, they send you that video, right? And then also, uh, you help them, encourage them to get it out on there and other people's social media. Do you, do you provide some guidance on how to make a video like this? Cause I mean, a lot of people just have no idea, even though we've all got cell phones now that have very good cameras on them. Um, do you, is there some guidance for how to put a short video together and how to put things out on social media in this way? Cause I, I think for many of us who are dinosaurs like me, I mean, obviously I grew up when Mastodon still bellowed to Mastodon across the primeval swamp and somewhat before the invention of the wheel. So as an analog person trying to work in a digital age, sometimes I get a little bit, oh God, like the only reason I can do this podcast is because my wife, Ileana used to work for IBM and knows how to do this stuff, but otherwise I'd be completely lost. So a lot of us are a bit old school like that. How do we old schoolers, um, create these things? Can, can, is there some guidance? Is, is the guidance just, well, go get some young people that know how to do it or what? Yeah. Um, how do we get help to do this? Yeah. Um, we actually do trainings for the charity partners and eventually we're going to get that on our website. So everyone has access to them. That's just one of those things on the list to do. Uh, so we do train in social media and, and things like what you're talking about with helping create videos. Now I will clarify that Horses for Mental Health is actually producing some videos that we're producing that are very professionally made that that the programs can also utilize to share whether you're a charity partner or not anyone can share yeah. those videos so you could they could they could use the videos that you've made to help themselves fundraise say this is the field this is what we do yes yes okay. and okay. so we've created some different feature videos that are around the five minute range we've created then also if anyone's seen them yet or not the animated videos so we are getting case stories from different programs and we turn those case stories into a three-minute animated uh, story. So that's it's always, again, very interesting process to go and try to take a story, a, a case experience, and make it three minutes where it has an emotional impact, where people understand how, how this can work. And we use the animation one because of confidentiality, and it's a great way to tell a story. And it's also been fun going to other countries now and realizing, actually, these animated videos could fit for any country, any culture. We literally would just need to do a different voiceover. Right. Um, and so that's exciting that we hope to do in the future as well. So, um, yeah, so we're telling these stories of transformation in a way that hopefully highlights, that is our goal, is to highlight the unique impact that horses bring to people's journey of transformation. When you're so, doing these, sorry, yeah. I've I got a question there. When you're doing these vid these videos of these stories, transformative stories. Are you also saying this happened at this program with some sort of link at the end that said, if you want to support the 
work of this program, follow this link, or will, will, will potential funders or viewers know which program that came from and then have a way of supporting them? Yeah, the, the very end of the video, we have credits that acknowledge our sponsor, acknowledge the premier partners, acknowledge all the charity partners, and then thank the story, the program of which the story came from. Fantastic. Okay, so people yeah. would know, okay, this story came from this program. I love this. I'd like to support that program. And our goal with these uh, short animated videos that, that share case stories is to have a diversity of different populations, ages and uh, needs therapeutic goals so we hopefully as the library grows there'll be something that fits for maybe your population focus and your objectives and focus areas fantastic fantastic i i have never heard of anything so unselfishly helpful um it's rather astonishing and and fair fair full disclosure listeners so um at our horse boy tribe day we have a a gathering of, of all our, as many of our members who want to show up as show up. Um, and we had that this year in Colorado at a place called Horse Buds in Greeley, Colorado, run by the amazing, um, Deb, uh, there who, um, Deb Michael, who hosted this way. They're basically mini conferences and Lynn was kind enough to show up and kind enough to talk us through arenas for change and sorry, horses for mental health. And the next thing, Arenas for Change, which we're going to get to in a minute. Um, and I was just blown away because um, I hadn't seen anybody in this field come forward with something that said, let's just uplift everybody, every organization all together from the small. He showed us that video of, of what was the place in Oakland again that, that is running such a great program? We ride too. We ride too. Yeah. We ride too. A really, really good video, short video of, of a program there of, um, people of color, youth of color, um, in, uh, in Oakland, obviously very needed place somewhere you wouldn't necessarily expect a program to see. And, and uh, it was really beautifully done and you could see how the attention that that program would get through what you were doing. Just them as one small little thing could be an absolute game changer, let alone for all of us who are running the larger organizations who also need to raise the profile that to have all that done at the same time and not say, well, I favor path over Igala or Igala over Horseboy or Horseboy over lifemanship. No, 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 no. We're all the same. We're all doing the same job. We're all in this together. And you were the first person, I think, to that I've seen coming along with, uh, with, a with a program that really right across that board without any, any factionalism uplifts us all. And so, um, what you viewers can't see is I've, I've, I've got an imaginary hat on here and I'm taking this hat off to Lynn and I'm taking my hat off. In fact, I'm going to do it several times because it's, it's an, it's, it's, it's a work of great vision. And, and when you, we explain what you're doing, you think, yeah, well, of course, yeah, it's obvious we should all do that, but nobody has. It's always like when you listen to a, a really good pop song on the radio, well, I could write that, but yeah, but you didn't. <laughs> um, it's like all good ideas. It seems like a no brainer. And yet in the, what, 50, 60 years of our field, it actually hasn't been done. Um, 
So I'm immensely impressed and immensely excited. Um, yeah, well, well, thank you. And really, again, acknowledging the co-founder, Jackie, and Tyler, uh, who have the experience with doing these campaigns that brought the knowledge and the idea. I mean, we knew we wanted to do something, but it's like how to go about doing it. Tell us about the amazing Jackie Tyler, because they're not here right now. Uh, let's, let's oh, that's two different Jackie. people. Yeah, Jackie, Jackie and Tyler. Okay, yeah, so let, let, let's hear about them. Uh, yeah, they've done campaigns in other sectors. Um, uh, ending polio, they did in Australia. That ended up raising I, millions. It might have been in the billions, actually, raising that amount of money by getting by the same concept of convening all the organizations in the end polio sector. And then, hey, everybody, let's work together because then we can reach out to these celebrities and we can put on this event. And then they get all the government leaders. Well, hey, the government leaders now, wow, this is a big audience. We might want to pump ourselves up a bit. And then they would then say, yes, we're going to dedicate government funds. Businesses say, oh, I want to get in front of this. We're going to de dedicate business funds and sponsorships to end polio. So they've done that with that and some other kind of big, huge uh, pr projects like that. And so Jackie has a background with horses and with mental health. And this has been a vision and a passion for her. And so she wanted to bring this to our sector and connected with me. And then I was like, yeah, I was, this is what we want to do. So that's that's where it comes from. So she's better at talking about it than I am. Um, I'm just here as the yes, let's do it because I believe in collaboration. I believe in when we work together, we're all better off. And, and just to share, I mean, some of just from our last two campaigns. So we're talking about five, six weeks of time. We had a reach of over 35 million on social media. Our videos have been watched over a million times. Yeah. And this kind of stuff is only happening because we're doing it together. Right. And it can keep growing. What, what Jackie clearly has, has um, identified is that what we're dealing with here is a public health issue and a public health campaign. The, the fact that it's, you, you bring on the end polio thing, you know, people think, well, horses and equine assisted stuff is a niche. I mean, it, it's people who yeah, are looking for therapy and just want to gaze at their navels and talk about how depressed they are. And, and we, we all know that this is not the case at all. We all know that people's lives are being saved daily in these programs. Um, it was interesting to me. I was, um, at, I, I've just come back from, um, doing a series of trainings in Ireland last week. And one of the clear messages you get whenever you go to any of these programs is they're all offering it in a slightly different way. Is there, there's always one or two young people who are there who will say to you, and I don't mean young, like twenties or young, like teens up I mean like young, like 11. So if it was not for this program, I would not be here. Like I, I would not be here. I would have left the planet at this point. And, uh, we all know this, um, we, the fact that we do have a crisis in mental health for sure in our society today, um, in a way that is, whether it's more acute than it was before, whether it's more, we're, because we're more aware of it and its effects on us than we were before. Nonetheless, now is its time. And just as we need to end polio, we need to ameliorate our mental health. If we're going to meet the challenges of all of the stuff that's up the road for us as a society, because we know there's some big stuff coming. 
of doesn't matter which end of the climate thing you sit on. You know, it's there. It's a conversation. Stuff is happening. Doesn't matter which end of the thing you're on, whether it's on Ukraine and is it, it's there, it's happening. Stuff's going on, stuff's going down. Life is getting more stressful. Costs are going up. Uh, world is getting more competitive, blah, blah, blah. And mental health is now a crucial thing. So the fact that Jackie identified that in the same way as, okay, we, we almost learned how to deal with pandemics and epidemics, but this is a different type of pandemic. And this is a much more insidious type of pandemic that claims the lives of millions of people every day around the world. People just feel they can't go on anymore. And that's the work we're all doing. So it's really interesting to me that she identified that. So I've got another hat on. Jackie, you can't see me, but I'm taking this hat to you. Thank you for deciding to make it a public health issue in the same way that polio would be. Tell us about Tyler. Who Who is Tyler on this? So team? Tyler is the executive producer of the campaign. And um, again, he's just, yeah the one doing all the operational steps behind the scenes of which there are many. And yeah. he's absolutely wonderful to work with, incredibly good at putting together really good campaigns. So I'm really appreciative of him and then the rest of the team. Uh, everybody has their different roles doing all, there's a lot of pieces to put on these campaigns. It's kind of like putting on a conference yeah. and even, and probably bigger in some ways too. Because I've experienced putting on conferences too. So so there's a lot of pieces behind the scenes and what's neat is, yeah, we're doing the legwork. And I think that's where, yeah, with Horses for Mental Health, really, I think that was the vision as I, it was time to step away from the, the training and the model that I was doing with the gala and really had this vision to look more macro, you could say. Absolutely. And do something that brings us all together. And it's been so fun because it has been bringing us all together. And I can't wait to see where it keeps going. I've got one more question before we go on to Arenas for Change. Um, so you're talking about the month in May. This is obviously a massively and mostly um, social media event. Is there actually also a single event event, like physical event that people can show up to? Or is the whole thing online and virtual? But basically, how do people participate? even if they're not submitting information about their programs, hoping to be involved. Yeah. So right now it's all online. However, our vision is to do some more event-based experiences and we encourage the charity partners as maybe part of their um, way of getting awareness with their fundraising teams that are out there saying, we believe in this program and this amazing cause to do little event, do a dinner or do a ride the horse or walk with the horse or anything like that. So we provide some ideas for the charity partners to utilize. And yeah, our our vision and what we're already starting to strategize and plan is that Horses for Mental Health is going to be conducting efforts year round, not just the one big campaign seen throughout this campaign in the month of May. We want to keep that momentum going year round with different types of events and, and experiences. Brilliant. So the the idea for physical events is 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 in at least in conversation and yes. Keep us apprised of things we can actually physically show up at or organize ourselves as part of it. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, like you have the bike for multiple sclerosis or walk for cancer, big events like that. Um, like as mentioned with Jackie and her background with like the end polio, or she, she was also part of starting the global citizen project, which is to end world poverty. Um, 
those are big concert events. And so people take actions on social media. And by taking actions on social media, spreading awareness, they get a free ticket to go to this concert that has all these big name singers. And then that's where the big companies and the government officials get on the stage. And it's one of those kind of events, too. So that might be in our future, something like that, too. And we'll just see how it continues to unfold. Fantastic. I can't wait. I can't wait to stay abreast of it and we'll do our, be- our best on this podcast to big it up and spread it out and let people know. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank, thank you for spreading the word. Thank you for, 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 for doing what none of us have done. That's, it's wonderful. Um, okay, so Horses for Mental Health, amazing. So Arenas for Change, not content with just doing one new thing on a global potential scale. You're not doing two. What is Arenas for Change and how does it differ from Horses for Mental Health? Yeah, it's funny you say that because after a gala, 21 years building a business, and I know you know what it takes. I know a lot of these programs know what it takes to to be an entrepreneur and build a business. And there was a part of me that was like, oh, I'm really, really tired. I am so I'm just going to go work for some corporation and make money for change. But that's the space I was in. And then I had this wonderful team like, Lynn, what are we doing next? And it's like, oh, okay, we're doing something next. But it's, you know, Arenas for Change was basically born out of like, well, now what are we going to do, Lynn? And and it really came about because there's a lot of us that just, we just love to learn. And we love to learn in a community because then we're pushing ourselves, we're building on ideas, and we're getting better when we're doing it together and learning with one another. And so Arenas for Change was born with this, like, well, we want to keep learning. And what do we want to keep learning? Where do we want to focus? And how do we want to do it? And so we we started with, first, again, our foundation is involving horses for mental health and any kind of well-being, education, coaching, personal development, organizational development. Um, however, there's a lot of people that are like, well, we also like other animals too. Yes. We like we like to do dogs. We work with chickens, goats, llamas. Um, we like nature. And a lot of us, thanks to the pandemic too, did really get into doing more telehealth online experiences. And so we created the word arenas and it's plural to acknowledge that while we're still very much engaged with the horses because that's our base, um, we work in a lot of different arenas and you know, we still want to learn with one another. So, and then for change, because we're about change, well, then one of our team members said, well, Arenas for change, A-R, for arenas, C-H for change is Arch. And so that could be our our simplified name. So Arch came about because arches are symbolic. They're symbolic of new beginnings, new perspectives, and transformation, which, of course, fit very well with the place in our journey that we were at. And it fits very well with the clients that we work with. So um, we started there. And the next thing we went with was, well, where do we want to focus? And and we kind of talked about, well, we're doing good work. And so many great organizations training, so many wonderful programs doing amazing things. We're all doing really good work out there. And what can we do to keep improving? What can we do to keep building on the great work that's already being done out there? So that was the first thing. And the second thing was we really wanted to focus on our facilitation skills and how we can continue to increase creating an emotionally safe environment because when clients feel safe, when horses feel safe, when everybody feels safe, when, the, when our team members feel safe, when everybody feels safe, learning can increase and our process can go deeper. 
So, and we really wanted to look at what can we do as facilitators where clients really feel seen and heard. I mean, the horses do that so well. And I think sometimes as facilitators, we're the ones that are getting in the way of that. So that was another thing we wanted to focus at. And then the other thing we wanted to do was, well, I didn't want to do a model again. I, I, I believe models have a place. So you needed very structured, more structured programs that can be replicated. Um, we just kind of wanted to do like, well, we like to embrace all the different interventions and ideas, and yet we still need a foundation. And so we created what we call the seeing keystones, um, which of course goes with clients feeling seen and heard. But the seeing keystones are just a framework for us as facilitators to hold in our minds, ask ourselves these questions, which are around sense of self. What am I, um, you know, Am I knowing myself? Am I understanding myself? How can I better understand myself? What is my sense of self in this moment? Uh, what is my opposite in this moment? Because when we look at our opposites, then we learn so much about ourselves. So um, I'll go through the questions in a minute, but basically it's a set of questions we ask ourselves under each of these acronym of seeing, sense of self, empowering mindset, externalizing story, and natural flow is what that stands for. And so when it's just a set of questions that we ask ourselves, then um, it can be applied in a lot of different ways in a lot of different settings. And I think for those of us who've been doing this work for a while, I think it helps us look at more of the nuances of what we're doing and how we're doing it and how we're facilitating and engaging with the client and with the experience and with the environment. Um, and for new people, what we're finding, I, I first wondered if this was going to be for maybe more experienced people, but actually we've had a lot of new people come through our trainings, just looking at this framework and asking ourselves these questions around sense of self and power mindset, externalizing story, natural flow, and, uh, really setting a great foundation for their learning as well. So, uh, yeah, that's what we're doing. And I'll, I'll mention externalizing story, of course really got us down the path of story and story, the story framework and mindset and how that applies in our work. So I'll stop there because that was a mouthful, but that's couple, what we started. Questions. Yes. Yeah, I know. I, I just realized there was more I missed. But anyway, I'm going to pause because well, I know that was a mouthful. Maybe maybe we, we'll get to those things that you missed. So, so, so Arenas for Change is a training program that say I could do um, where I could learn to um, emphasize making my learning slash professional environment slash service provision environment safer um where by allowing the service users let's say to be more seen and heard by training me through certain questions um, to keep that ethic front and center in my work and the environment that I provide and whether it's for me, whether it's for the client, whether it's for the horses, what was all of us, is that, have I got it right? Is that what you do? That's thank you for helping concise it. You're right. It's a learning environment. So we, we provide training. Um, and mainly, like I said, it started because we just all, a group of us all wanted to keep learning. And then we're like, well, anybody else can join us who wants to. And then it's turned into, it keeps growing as well. <laughs> also, um, and, that, and then we added certification due to popular requests or, or requests for that. 
And even how we're doing that is a little bit different. But ultimately, yes, you can come and learn this. And and let me just kind of share too, when I mentioned about what we started, we actually, when we first were starting, we we're like, well, what's our mission? What's our vision? And we actually were going around in circles. We were like debating what's a mission and what's a vision. <laughs> and we had different opinions and mission. that old thing. And mission. <laughs> I know. I was like, all right. What? But then we started talking about our values. Uh-huh. And it was when we started talking about our values that we really lit up. And so we have a set of values. They're actually long paragraphs because at first we're like coming up with the one word things. And then we're like, well, it doesn't have to be one word. So uh, so we came up with values. So that's our foundation is we want to connect with others who want to keep learning and growing, improving our skills as facilitators. And we share these values. Okay, so that that's the the first thing. And then the second thing is, well, what do we want to learn? Because we do, we can't be too broad. We can't be all things to all people. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of the seeing keystones, okay, here's here's where we're going to focus. And then that led into a little bit more about story. So we talk about for people who are interested and want to learn more about how to apply a story mindset, which we can talk more about that. In environments with animals, horses, nature, or even online or in your office, that's really what a lot of our focus is. Okay, talk to me about these stories. How we how we involving story? How we using story? So there's a couple of ways because I think the first thing people out with with like narrative therapy and stuff, you think about well, we all are grow up and we tell ourselves these stories. We have these narratives in our mind that influence how we engage with our relationships and with the world around us. So I'm not good enough or nice people. Well, this people thing are nice, they're manipulating me. Or whatever. Yeah, yeah. No, those, those kind of narratives. So there's that aspect of the stories that we tell ourselves and really investigating, exploring those. What we're really looking at this though is looking at life as a story. And you probably have a lot to have input on this because you're a storyteller, Rupert. So- when we look at life as a story, we get new perspectives. So we look at one, I'm the main character of my life right now. I'm I'm in the story of this podcast with Rupert and we're having an experience right now. We're feeling things, we're experiencing things. I'm in it. I'm a character in this story, right? Right? And as are you. We're characters in the story and I'm feeling experience in it. However, if, if in my mind or or even physically, if I were to take a step back and say, hmm. I'm going to look at this podcast with Rupert as a story. Now I'm going to kind of watch. I'm going to take and look as if I'm a viewer watching a movie or a reader reading a book. Now I'm still going to be feeling and experiencing things because we do. When we're watching a movie, we still have some emotional connection. We're putting ourselves in the shoes of the characters a lot of times. But we are getting a little different perspective when we step back, right? We can see new things. Do not walk into that scary room. But when we're a character, we don't see that, right? So as a viewer, we're seeing new perspectives. But then we also have another perspective stepping further back as an author. And when you're looking at your life as a story from an author's perspective, that's another whole different type of perspective that you get. And so as facilitators, we can engage with our clients and invite or flow through these different perspectives as a character, as a viewer, and as an author. Character, and it's really viewer, powerful. Okay, that's interesting. Sorry, I just wanted to clarify that. Okay, so go on. Yeah. So and so when we're working with our clients as a character, say they're they're in the space with the horses, 
they're having an experience. Our role as a facilitator then is to hold that space for them to have that experience. We might become fellow characters in their story. That's possible too. And so I'm going to engage with them in a way that might be more like I'm a character in their story. And how would I be as that character? Meaning like maybe I'm the listening ears. They just need someone to listen. Um, I've, you know, maybe I, I remember some, a client one time saying, wow, I was afraid to say this. I didn't want to say this because I'm having grief, but I know that you have a loss too. And I was worried about saying too much because you have this loss. Okay. I did have a loss. All right. And I was having feelings genuinely hearing her loss story. And now I can step back a little bit in my own mind as a facilitator and say, I'm the, I'm the character in her story that she's worried about hurting. And therefore she's not taking care of herself because she's worried or she's not sharing or whatever because she's worried about the other person. I'm that character in this story. So I'm going to be that character. Um, so that's how we're going to engage. A lot of it's a more holding space, allowing that process for them to feel and experience. As a viewer, if the client's in viewer role, we're stepping back. Maybe we're watching the space with the horses and maybe they're narrating some things. And I'm going to be more like, wow, I'm going to join in them with the curiosity. Like I'm sitting next to someone watching a movie like, wow, that was interesting. Or I wonder what that's about. Or I wonder what's going to happen next. Now we don't want to overdo it because then it becomes annoying. So as a facilitator, again, I'm doing a lot of holding space, a lot of being present, a lot of joining with our clients. Right. You don't want the DJ to interrupt the song too often, right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So, and then when they're in the author role, when we invite that, we'll, we'll step out. We'll literally change our physical location. Okay. And it's almost like you're sitting a bunch of, like, we're the story editor as a facilitator. They're the author. So we're really paying attention that we're supporting them as the author, that we don't become the author. Um, but as a story editor, I'm going to educate about, so I'm going to look at, well, what are the main characters of this story? What are some of the characteristics of those characters? We're going to deepen and develop the story. We'll look at locations. Settings matter. The scenes matter. Look at the locations, characteristics. We'll look at what is this really a story about? What's looking to transform? Um, so we have a whole process that we've learned and we started exploring and experimenting with, and we teach that because we've actually found it to be really powerful and it helps clients get these new perspectives, but also it helps organize the experience in a way that's really meaningful. Even something simple, like if you were to put a title to the experience, if you were to look at this experience with the horse as a story and you were to put a title, it, what might you title it? Yeah. And that actually can be really meaningful and it anchors the experience in a concise way. So I, again, there's so much about it because I get really excited about this story. There's a lot of depth to how story and a story mindset can be utilized. Um, but the biggest thing and what we say is when our stories change, we change. And it's not just about changing the narratives. The experience we're having with the horses is a story. And the stories, what we like to say, are some of the most amazing story editors we have seen because they shift and they do things. And next thing you know, our story changes and something inside of us shifts. I love it. When's the next training that I can join? <laughs> well, that was the other thing we wanted to do with Arch. Is I, I really wanted it to be accessible because so much that's out there, it, it's, again, wonderful trainings and it costs a lot. And so we really wanted accessibility, which we can do nowadays with a lot of the online. So we have some really wonderful online courses. People can just get 
monthly subscription, stay as long as it works for you, learn what you want to learn. And then, of course, we have people who stay longer because they like to be part of the community and the continued learning. But yeah, feel free to jump on arenasforchange.com. You can get a monthly subscription one, access the online courses, including there's videos of actual sessions in there that you can watch. And then we debrief. You can watch us debrief those actual sessions and learn what our thought process was and what we learned going through it. So there's that in there and a whole course talking about the scene keystones and also about there's whole section about the horse, horse, the horse's role, horse specialists and their role and things they can consider um, and think about questions they can ask themselves. We also have an online live interactive workshop called Scene Through Story. It's two days. It's intense, it's immersive, and it's fun. It's very interactive. You're going to create your own personal growth story using the tools we teach you and as a way to learn it and apply it. So, and you'll leave with seven very, like, seven really good tools that you can just add to your toolbox. You can apply them as it fits for you, but they are definitely two tools that will help when you feel stuck with your clients, when clients, when the process feels a little stuck and you need a way to expand or move. Um, these story tools are really effective with that. So, so we have that scene through story workshop two days that you can uh, look into attending to. Um, and then we do have some in-person experiences, but I'm just sharing that right now because that's where it makes it more accessible that anyone can, can join in, learn, learn with us. We learn from each other. We talk about, we're all teachers. We're all learners. We have a whole process in our platform too, that we all learn from each other. And, um, yeah, that's if we do going. want to come and attend one of the physical courses, I'm, as I said, a mastodon hunter. So my name, by the way, is Ugg, and, and I come from the Ugg tribe, uh, where we speak Ugg. So I, I do very well in live events. Where, where are they being held? And uh, I presume, I, obviously, I could sign on to them by going onto the, the website. Uh, but uh, yeah, do you have... A particular venue? Are there many venues? Uh, how, how does it work if, if you want to do it live? Well, so we started Arch in 2021. So I'm saying that because we keep shifting what we're doing. <laughs> we keep, well, I already, I already shifted with the gallop. I wouldn't know anything about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's always changing. It's always evolving. So right now what we're doing, one, we have what we call the Arch Gatherings, which uh -huh. reminded me of your tribe experience. Uh -huh. Very similar. We we kind of, we say in our gatherings, it is experiential. It's in an environment with horses and nature and anything else. And it's like an experiential conference. So we say there's no PowerPoints. Sure. It's, it's when we're together, someone who's going to share their experience or their specialization, or they want to try something new and they talk about, but then they create an experience that we're going to actually hands-on practice. Okay. And um, so we have a lot of different members and non-members alike attend and, and present and share. And we, we've done stuff with mounted work. We've done stuff on the ground with different populations. We've yes, but done I art. want to come on these courses. Where is it? Where, where do I go? Oh my gosh. Okay. Go to our website. <laughs> we are doing them in different regions of the world. So we have okay. Minnesota in June. So once a year, they're once a year in the different regions. Minnesota in June. We usually have a Latin America one. We have an Australia one in October. And then we're going to have a, we were in the Netherlands this year. This 2024, we're going to be in Denmark in September. It's not on the website yet. It's got to, we got to get that up there. But um, so we do them in those different regions. So once a year, check out our website or get on our email list. 
And this would be and for how long? Is this a two-day thing? Five, it's three days. Three days. Three days. Yeah. Brilliant. How many people? Um, they've been around like in the twenty to thirties range. Okay, good. So like a, a, a not too small, but not too big. Somewhere where mm. it's intimate, but you can also divide people up into smaller groups and get back together again. And right. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yep, that's exactly right. I mean, again, we want, I guess for me, and maybe I, I yeah, being in person, it's a time for connection. Yeah. Because that's why I say no PowerPoints. If we want to do a PowerPoint, we can do that online. Sure. Um, and if, you know, a lot of this, I how mean, else will I fall asleep, Lynn, if, if you don't put me in a, a nice um, darkened room with a PowerPoint and we can snooze gently in the back? And... Well, there are hammocks. Actually, you don't even need the PowerPoint because we're like, you know what? Do you? We, you know, if you need a break, go take a break. This is just about, we're here to learn with each other. And if you want to go sleep in the hammock, you don't even need a dark end room, Rupert. You could just go take a hammock and say, I'm out of here. I'm going to go hang with the horses. I, that's what I need right now. <laughs> so, so, okay. So if, I, so if I was in Minnesota in June, I could do one of these. Um, if I was, yeah. that's the other thing in Denmark, where, when would that be? It's going to be in September next year. Okay. And if I was to do the thing. I forgot the exact date. Do you have? Yeah. Okay. And that's the second weekend of October is Australia. Okay. In uh, Queensland. Okay. And are you there yourself at these? I have been so far. Yes. So if we, would, if we wish to touch the hem of your garment and avert yeah, your, right. your, your brilliance, that would be the place to do it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm staying holed up. And <laughs> actually, no, you know what's been fun is, yeah, I've just been spending more time just going around to other people's yeah. trainings and events. It's been so fun. I, like you said, we can learn from everybody. Um, and if we have the opportunity to do that, I say absolutely do that. And so I've had the wonderful chance to you know, come visit you, you and your tribe, which was amazing. And natural, I went to the Natural Life Leadership Conference, went to the Herd Institute Conference. I'm going to go to the Polyvagal Equine Institute training. And I'm just really at the stage of life where I'm excited to just flow with what is interesting to me. Yeah. And yeah, well, I, I guess what, what we've all found, um, those of us who've been doing this for a while, is that as the field has expanded, um, it just gets more interesting. And as, as more people bring more to it, what you're doing here, as you say, I'm a storyteller. And one of the things, one of the reasons I find that so attractive is I know the healing power of story. I mean, everybody does because people talk about our species or we are called homo sapiens sapiens, which means the thinking ape, but there's nothing special to our species about thinking, right? Anything with a brain thinks and many, many things on the planet have a brain. Well, in fact, you could even say that many people, if you look at Rupert Sheldrake's work or that sort of thing, the conscious universe and a mycelium network, maybe the entire... Everything is conscious and thinking. So there's nothing special to us about that. But it seems that what we have, which other, let's say, am animals don't at least, is the, the larynx, the voice box, which is the ability to tell stories. So other animals vocalize, right? But, and they can do it in a, in a very, very, very complex way. But we're the ones who write Shakespeare, rap, epic poetry, whatever. Um, that's us. That's the human. So really, we're the storytelling, aren't we? And I, I find that with, with autism, that's one of the big challenges is, is when one encounters someone with auto, A-U-T-O, 
ism, self-ism, auto is the Greek word for the self, locked in the self, the, the relationship with the exterior world is the problem. Then it can be very difficult for, for one not to other these, these people because they're not storytelling, at least in a way that we can immediately understand because they're not doing it with the learnings. So it's fascinating to me. At, and having lived at hunting and gathering tribes, what I know is that all healing is story. So for example, if you go to the, the healer or the shaman, if you're in the Kalavari, you go with a story, but it, you also do that. Of course, you know, when you go to a doctor, you go with a story, oh, oh, it's my leg. Oh, it's my, this, it's my, that. And then the doctor goes into their research or into their computer or into their knowledge bank, or the shaman goes into the spirit world through an autostatic consciousness. Then they come out with a series of instructions because they've been told a story in there. And then they give you another story and you then leave, of course, and create a new story. And. So we know that storytelling is at the absolute center of the healing experience for humans, really at the center of the life experience. And one of the things which I've, I've found, and of course, many people, everyone basically who's, who's li ever lived with a hunting and gathering group has found is that the original human cultures are all cultures of conflict resolution because they're all com cultures of strategy. They're not, they're not cultures of competition. Because we're weak, mid-level predators, right? There's everything out that's going to eat us. We don't have big claws, big teeth. We're not fast. We're not like the other great apes, which can rip a leopard in half. No, 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 no. The only way we stand a chance is if we cooperate. And um, now we are cannibalizing ourselves a little bit, but it's really only the last 10,000 years. So I love, basically, this is me just getting excited and go blah, 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 blah. Because what I see you're doing is that you're really bringing that healing power of story into the work that we're all doing and by putting it into it sorry it's character author and editor is that right viewer the character viewer author now the client is the author we look at ourselves as facilitators as story right. editors meaning not the kind that corrects not the proofreading kind right. the kind of story editors that support authors in deepening their stories but what you've basically got there is is the is the classic structure of good storytelling, right? Because you've got always a prologue, right? So it starts at the height of the action. I, there's a crisis. You, you say, I've got a problem or something. And then there's act one, the call for adventure. The adventure is always reluctantly pulled in. Doesn't want to, cause it's a schlep. Then there's act two, it all goes wrong. And at the end of act two, the, the protagonist has to go and learn something and change something about themselves, go find Yoda and learn how to use the force or whatever. Act three, they re-encounter Darth Vader and it all goes wrong again. Just as the lightsaber's at their throat, they remember what Yoda showed them and call upon it and effect a change. And then look, you see them leave into a changed world. I mean, that's every story, right? That's the parasite. And that's basically everyone's life story, more or less. And everyone's seasons of life story. You've absolutely broken down this work into that hero's journey which I think is, is the universal human experience. And whether you did that consciously, I don't know. Did you do that consciously or, or did that just come from the, the Akashic record from, from the, from the, from the greater conscious universe into you? Cause it's, it's really inspired what you've done. Well, I mean, absolutely. I think we can learn so much from stories and storytelling exactly what you're saying, the hero's journey. And when we look at our life that way, we get those new perspectives. And so absolutely what you're saying. And then. I, I was curious for you, I mean, so when you had the experience you had with Rowan going to Mongolia um, and you had that experience, 
And then you chose to put it on paper. And I'm curious for you, like, what was your experience like of integrating that experience by going from actually being in it to then putting it on paper? Because you were a character in it and then you became an author of it. Okay, that's a very good question. No one's asked me that before. As it was happening, I was writing it down. So I was writing down every moment. Um, and I knew I couldn't make anything up because there were cameras on. And the people behind the cameras were not me. So it was the best will in the world. And they were going to show what they were going to show. Um, so it kept things authentic. But I also knew that I would be able to see things the camera couldn't see because obviously there's my internal experience and then there's the camera clearly point one way. There might be a bird flying over the hill or a particular light falling on a mountainside that that, that camera can't get because it's pointed at me or it's pointed at a horse or it's pointed at a road. Um, so I realized that there were these multiple perspectives. Um, and so it became important to do more than journal, but to really try to chronicle. I think this would be the word, um, the experience as we went. So I filled up notebooks as I went and it became, you know, I'd be leaping off the horse to, to scribble things, um, because I would have Rowan in front of me and I couldn't actually write while that was going on. So, and then later when the time came to, to write the book, I had that record to draw upon and, um, the. The, 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 the detached observer who's always there in all of us, right? Whenever any of us is going through something, no matter what it is, I mean, something banal, you're driving a car. There's always a part of you observing yourself driving the car and there's a part of you driving the car and consciousness is a really interesting thing because there's that part of us that is us, i.e. Rupert going downstairs now to have a glass of wine or something. And there's that other part of me observing Rupert going down, have a glass of wine, saying, Rupert, do you really need that glass of wine? Um, to which the answer is clearly. So that then became clearer, obviously, as I was then able to review what had been written, because you don't remember. That's the thing. You remember certain things, but you don't remember it all. And then you, you can look at it and go, oh, oh yes, gosh, that happened. And then of course, then we're at the same time, we're editing the film and we're editing 250 hours of footage. So we were looking at a lot of stuff and, um, remembering and being reminded of, and then wondering how to condense it down. So it was a coherent narrative that wouldn't just send everybody to sleep. Um, so we, you know, we really went through that. And then, and then what happens is you go through other people's reactions to your story. Um, and then your own reactions to other people's reactions to your story and then the story taking on a greater energy and going on and doing its own thing. So, so what happened with the horse boy, with the horse boy, um, Nafiel, I'm being interviewed here, but, um, alala, so here I'm flipping into interviewee mode, but what was interesting was that I could feel from the get go on an intuitive level in my solar plexus, in my gut, in my gut, villi inside my gut, I could feel that there was some ancestral process at work where there was, um, a job to do with this story and that I had stumbled into by to no uh, talent or intelligence of my own 
um, a series of being mentored. I was mentored by Temple Grandin. Then I was mentored by Rowan. Then I was mentored by Betsy. Then I was mentored by the Shams. Then I was mentored by the neuroscientists. And that all resulted in something replicable that today we call horseboy method or movement method. Um, I could feel even before any of that happened, that there was something at work, a, a shift, a pull that I must just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Um, and that is the power of story. I think that you can sense story as it's evolving. You can sense story when it's still unformed, but calling. And this is why people go and do things in the world. So I, I think that what you're doing, just to bring it back to you with Arch, is if you can help people to facilitate that process I just described, because everybody has a story like that in them in their life which is of great benefit to everybody else. Because, you know, I went through this thing of, well, then why make, why go public with it? Why, why not just say, I fell into this thing with this horse, Betsy, that it's great for my son. He started speaking and then he got literate and then he got numerous. And yeah, I observed it working for other kids, but I just keep this one to myself because honestly, that's easier. But as a, as a father who was in crisis, surrounded by other parents who were in the same crisis, having stumbled into something that worked, I realized that I had a bit of an obligation to make it available if I possibly could. I think that what you're doing here will allow an awful lot of people to do that because if we, the human species, are effectively a storytelling species and a conflict resolution species, then you are doing something with arenas for change where that can be magnified perhaps for people who for whom stories is something of a new concept, even though they've been unconsciously living it, then the net effect must be more healing, right? It can only be more healing because that is what story does. So that's well, fascinating to me what you're doing. Oh, and thank Yeah. Thank you for sharing. That was so beautifully summarized too. And, and I think, again, that was such a neat example of you had an experience. You were in this experience with your son. And you were feeling it. And then you had the experience of writing it down while you were there and that learning that you got from that. Then you had the experience of putting it on paper and then also watching footage, video footage, and then responding to the stories of other viewers. Like you relived and looked and experienced that same experience in multiple ways with multiple perspectives. I mean, each one of those. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, how that expanded your story, what insights that, that gave you to watch yourself on video, to write it in a book, to see how other people respond, um, how that expanded your story, how that deepened that same story um, and where it took you by doing that. So you're absolutely right. That is our hope that as facilitators, we can create similar experiences like that with our clients where they can experiencing things from all those multiple storytelling perspectives yeah. of different distances like yeah. that from their experience that and with their experience so i think it does deepen it deepens the experience it helps us see new perspectives we may not have seen it helps takes us in new directions our stories are impacted in ways they wouldn't have been had we not gone through that journey yeah, no, I, I, I agree. It's, and I think, I think we're not allowed or 
in our current society a little bit to look at our lives that way. We, 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 or, or to look, we, we can look at them linearly as stories. I was here. That's the past. And now I've got this present. I'm supposed to always be in the present moment. And then there's this future that hasn't yet happened yet. But what if it's all simultaneous? Like that's a, that's very much say the, the Sun Bushman or the Aboriginal Australian perspective is that actually they call the dream time or whatever that's past, present and future are really the same thing. And, and this linear line that we're following is a sort of stubborn illusion, um, created perhaps by gravity that time could even be a construct of gravity. Now that's that what Einstein was hinting at, um, and that multiple perspectives, whether or not you believe in a multiverse or whether you believe in past, present and future all at the same time, or whether you think it's all in it, doesn't much matter because what we do know is that we experience things from multiple perspectives. And I think that if you through arch are drawing people's attention to that, the healing potential of that, I think is that, as you say, when someone has perspective on a problem, that is soothing, it's automatically soothing to look at a problem from the outside. Um, and people talk about taking the macro perspective or imagining that you were looking down from space at your problem. But I, and all of these things are useful tools. However, they can be a little hard to achieve or to, to suddenly jump to, oh, suddenly I'm just going to look at my thing from the outside. But I think what you're talking about here is guiding people through a step-by-step -step process where each of these small steps from uh, character to viewer to author. And then you've also got you guys as editors, but perhaps they could also become, learn to become their own editors, etc. Editors is lovely because you can rewrite a story. You can go back and make amends. If you feel you've done something wrong, even in your mind, in your heart, that's actually still putting it out there into the universe. You can forgive somebody, even if you have not see, you can't see them anymore. Maybe they're even dead, but you, you can do that. And that affects the story yours and the greater one and theirs and so on and so on. Um, I love this. Um, so by, by taking it down into these small step-by-step -step processes, as you, as you describe, each of which is simplish in its individual form, you can help someone do something that's actually quite complex by putting them all together. Whereas if you said, be in the present moment or look at it from the outside and have perspective on it or that would be a tall order because it's too big of a jump from where one is now to that thing. But these stages that you've outlined, I think make it possible. Yeah. And, and it's fun and it's engaging. Stories are fun and we're engaging. We're to have fun. Where there, it can be fun. Lord, Therapy can anybody. be fun. <laughs> I mean, horses already engage, help people feel more engaged. And then when you add into when the clients start having that you know, it's a timing thing when they are able to step back and look at it from those different perspectives. But when they do it next, it's like, yeah, what, I wonder what is going to happen next in this unfolding story that we don't know where it's actually going. Um, and the horses just keep changing things unpredictably. And then the story changes and it's like, whoa, what's happening? But we have found that with the clients, it's been really effective and impactful in, in sparking that curiosity and like, yeah, this is, this is a story and I'm, I'm, in the story, but I'm writing the story or <laughs> I'm authoring the story. It doesn't mean we control everything in our life because characters have to go into the unknown. But right. And anyone who's ever written a story knows characters have a funny habit of doing whatever they want to do. 
Yes. You can buffle right now. My characters do not behave. I structure out what they're going to do and they just rebel all the time and bring (laughs) characters and just like So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we get new insights and it it can be intriguing and interesting, just like it is. In fact, um, we were just sharing like with this veterans group, one of our programs, member programs was sharing about, they call it each, each week is called an episode and they title the episode and they get really excited about coming, coming back and okay, what's going to be the next part? What's going to be in the next episode? Oh, and they do a little trailer to talk about the last episode, the last week's session. Well, okay, here's the little trailer previously on. And then, you know, okay. And then they get to experience the next one. So it's, again, it doesn't have to always look like that. It's more, we're just, we're adding tools in our toolbox. And as facilitators, I know it's helped me um, watching the sessions as a story, because then I start looking at things as characters and I wonder what the main character or who the impact characters are and and some of their characteristics. And it, it, it brings out my own curiosity as well. Right. And curiosity what's important about the space itself and the location. Curiosity itself is very healing, right? The learning brain mm-hmm. is the happy brain. Um, yeah. As you said earlier, under stress, one cannot learn. But we are curious, curious monkeys, right? And... I could see how doing what you're doing also allows people through that perspective to take things less personally, including you as the facilitator, right? And when yeah. stop taking something personally, you're healed, right? Mm-hmm. We see along the path to healing. Well, I, I will say if people are interested to learn more on our website, arenasforchange.com, on some of the pages, I know the story page, the newsletter page, there's, there's a freebie you can download. It's a little ebook about story and it takes you part of that little ebook. It takes you through an experience that you get to do on yourself. And um, so if people want to kind of get in more of a feel about it, you can yeah. go there, sign up for our email list as part of that and you get our little ebook, but it's, it's a fun, might get a, a feel for what it can look like and what you can learn too. This is amazing. Okay. So we're going to have to, we, we've gone for a long time and, um, that's more I want to ask. So here's what I'd like to do. If you're amenable, you talked about what's the next episode, but well, for me, what I'd like to do is I would like to come back actually on this podcast with you and do a separate one on arenas for change. I think that, I think that we've introduced this concept, but it's a, it, there's a lot more here that I'd like to delve into. And I'm sure you uh, listeners would do the same, of course, with horses for mental health. And so if it would be okay with you, cause we've covered about since 1999 to here in this podcast, it's a fair bit of ground. Um, and I'm so grateful and you've massively informed me. Um, so what I would like to do if possible is, could we come back? It's now we're having this conversation, conversation, December 6th, May is going to be the month for forces for mental health and, and getting all that stuff together. Perhaps, do you think it might be a good idea if we come back and we look at that in more depth during that month? If you have the time, you might be very busy or perhaps leading up to that month, you tell me. And then I would like to do something in more detail on this healing power of story, please, um, with arenas for change so that we can give it its due. Would that be amenable? Well, that's amazing. Yes, we'd absolutely love to. And yeah, we can definitely talk and talk <laughs> i don't know how long this has actually been but um oh, it's been five so engaging, it's, been so engaging. <laughs> it's been so engaging for me i appreciate yeah, me your too. questions and um your custody and 
Um, so yes, I would be honored to come back and, and continue having conversations. Thank you. Uh, well, let's do it because, um, there's, there's just so much to cover. Once again, before we sign off on this one, please, the websites where people can go for information. So first is horsesformentalhealth.org. And again, definitely sign up on our email list there and check out our different resources. In fact, we have a, a research summary resource programs can use to download to give the evidence base um, along with a lot of other information and the videos and about the campaign there. And then the other website is arenasforchange.com. Uh, and would love for you to come check us out and, and even join us for a month if you want and learn everything you can learn. And we just love learning with whoever wants to come and join in with us. Horsesformentalhealth.org? So. Dot org. Are and then arenasforchange.com. Arenasforchange.com. Very good. Have it. Yes. Yes, you're right. I, I wasn't satisfied with starting another one new business. We start two new businesses. <laughs> one one.org and one one.com, which is its own channel. I, I question that quite a bit sometimes too, but they are very different purposes. So Welcome to your story, Lynn Thomas. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, thank you. Um, we will reconvene. Well, thank you. Thanks for all you do to spread the word and transform lives. And also thanks for everybody for listening. Appreciate it. It's been amazing. All right. So until the next time, um, I guess we will do that difficult thing where we press that red button because I don't want to press that red button because it's been so amazing. Well, actually, that's one of the things we do with our clients is invite them how they would want to close the episode or close the scene. Um, you know, sometimes they say they want to push the pause button. Sometimes they put a bookmark in it. We had a client that actually literally said he wanted to do a fade out and we all literally walked backwards to do a fade out. <laughs> so Brilliant. we have fun with that too, but yeah. Brilliant. Okay, then. In that case, to be continued, dot, dot, me. dot. How about that? Okay, we have some music. <laughs> da, 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 da. All right, till the next time. Can't wait. Lynn, thank you so much. Thank you for, yeah, thank you. Hey, thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join our website, newtrailslearning.com, to check out our online courses and live workshops in Horseboy Method, Movement Method, and Athena. These evidence-based programs have helped children, veterans, and people dealing with trauma around the world. We also offer a horse training program and self-care program for riders on longridehome.com. These include easy-to-do online courses and tutorials that bring you and your horse joy. For an overview of all shows and programs, go to rupertisaacson.com. See you on the next show.